You're listening to The Maniculum, pointing the finger at the Middle Ages. We bring you the choicest medieval nonsense, discuss and evaluate it, then pillage it for our own geeky purposes. Hello, listeners! (laughs) Gosh, great start. Hello, everyone! I hate technology because I'm a medievalist. And I'm also a game developer, so stitch that one together however you will. I'm also Zoe, and I'm here with my co-host, Mac, a PhD candidate at Purdue University, and we are medievalists who teach you how to adapt weird medieval stories into TTRPGs. So, this week we are finishing up our Pride episode, which we got through one article last time, we were so excited, we had so many prepped, and we only got through one, so... You know, Pride Month goes a whole month long, so we're going to make our episodes go for the whole month. So that's what we're going to do. But before we get started, just a reminder that we have all of our wonderful various social media. We have our Twitter, our Facebook, our, I guess, Mastodon, Tumblr, Instagram, our associated things. But most importantly, we have our Discord where you guys can jump in, chat with us. We have so many wonderful channels for you guys to explore. We've got article reference swaps. We've got book club. We've got memes, just all sorts of fun. So please do come and hang out. Links for that are in the description or the show notes or whatever you are listening to or listening on. You can find that there. And we also have a Patreon. And it is thanks to our wonderful patrons that we are able to do this at all. You guys really do support the show and make it possible for us to, you know, host this on a server, put it out there. And yeah, this is literally run by you guys and you guys let us talk. So it means a whole bunch to us that we've done this for like two years now. And if you would like to contribute to that and get some awesome content out of it, check out our Patreon. Also links below. But with that, we will jump right back into our Pride episode. So Mac, how are we doing this? We're going to read some articles. Zoe has an article. I have an article. Then Zoe has another article. Then I have another article. We're probably not going to do all of those. But hopefully. Hopefully. Yeah, we'll try. Yeah. Before I turn it over to Zoe, though, I wanted to share with the audience. Earlier today, I was reading Judith Bennett's book on alewives. Oh, yes. This. Okay. Yeah. Unrelated. Unrelated. Just because I'm preparing for Kalamazoo. The, The fact that we'd just done a whole episode on her article is separate. I don't know why you're saying this. I haven't told you this. Oh, this isn't what you texted me earlier? No, that was from The Secrets of Women. Oh, The Secrets of Women. Well, now now we have to talk about that because I alluded to it. Well, I got really excited. Basically, yes. basically, one of the apparent secrets of women is that if you ejaculate onto... No, if a cat... If a cat. If a cat... There's nowhere good this sentence can go. If a cat ejaculates onto sage leaves and then a woman ingests the savory nature of these um, sage leaves, then she will get pregnant with kittens and vomit them up. Like that, She won't be able to give birth to them. She will just vomit them up. Oh, no, it's weirder than that. Oh, great. See, this is not a secret of women. This is just uh... adjacent. The reason that... The vomiting of kittens is involved is because this is what happens if a man eats the sage leaves because he doesn't have oh. a place for the kittens to go out, so they have to go up instead of down. That's worse. That hmm. All right. So 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 men can get pregnant by cat 
sperm. Yeah, presumably a woman could too, but they would come out normally. But it doesn't actually say that. This is just one sentence in one of the commentaries, and it's a complete non sequitur, other than the chapter is generally about how babies are made. So, like, I guess it's related. That's bizarre. Anyway, if you liked that anecdote, you're gonna love the rest of this episode. Are they? Is that gonna come up more? (laughs) I mean, not really, but, like, the medievals had weird views of sexuality and sex and how people got pregnant in the first place, and that's the theme I'm running with, especially in regards to, like, queer sexualities. All right. Anyway, what is your actual anecdote? What I was going to say is I was reading Judith Bennett's book on alewives, and chapter two starts with a brief anecdote of a widowed alewife named Denise Marleray, I think is how you say that, who in her will left the majority of her business to her servant Rose. And... Oh, this is cute. I had I had not picked up on this the first time I read this book, but now that I've read... Judith Bennett's other work, I'm like, I think the author is putting the same mental air quotes around servant Mm. like I am here. One could say this is a lesbian-like behavior. Yes. Ooh, interesting. Business partners and other partners. Ooh, Uh, and that's just begging for like a niche in in a home game or like a story, isn't it? That's just begging for for a novel. Yeah, there's something there. I like it. I like it. Why can't we get something like that instead of the Tudors? What we need is something on the Peasants' Revolt. True, true. Or a video game on the Peasants' Revolt. You should pitch that. That would be really dope. That would be really dope. I will keep that in I'm, mind. I'm seeing like branching plot lines based on yeah. different accounts. Ooh, there should be a good be ending fun. where you actually institute like an egalitarian utopia. That could be really cool. That could be really fun. One day when I'm a director, yeah. I'll tuck that one away. To consult. Yeah, there we go. All right. Anyway, brief disclaimer, just like last time, medieval sexuality is weird. Sexuality is weird. They did not have the language that we do today. And even the language we use today is highly debated and fraught. The discourse is fraught, shall we say. So we mean no offense to those who interpret identities or identification in a way other than how we say it. We are not meaning to misgender or disrespect anyone, but we walk into this in good faith with the note that it is very difficult to, I guess, quote unquote, assign, which isn't even accurate, identities to individuals. So I like to use the word queer as sort of a catch-all with that. But anyway, as Bennett said in her article, lesbian-like or queer or gay are all amorphous strange terms so just a brief disclaimer there and with that i will jump into my article so this one is jacqueline murray twice marginal and twice invisible lesbians in the middle ages and so i think this pairs very nicely with our last episode because the last episode was about identifying i guess more positive forms or positive representations of lesbians and lesbian-like behaviors in the Middle Ages. And this one's a lot harsher, mainly because Murray, Murray's whole point here is that it's very hard to identify lesbians in the Middle Ages, because none of the like, they didn't get to write anything down in the first place, or very rarely they did. And also, it was um, 
prohibited by the church and blah, blah, blah. So hence twice marginal and twice invisible. So I'll, I'll go through her introduction very briefly. And then the one thing that we were curious about in the first place, which kind of sparked our, our Pride episode for this month in, in the first place was, didn't the nuns get it on together with each other? Are there any references to that? I feel like you have to assume they did. Yeah, absolutely. So we talked about a convent in the last episode where some of that stuff could have been going on, but I did find an actual like penitential that talks about it. So I will go into that. All right. So quote, any attempt to study lesbians in the middle ages from the outset is fraught with difficulties, both conceptual and evidential of all groups within medieval society. Lesbians are the most marginalized and least visible. All the difficulties attendant upon the study of female sexuality and male homosexuality are exacerbated in the case of medieval lesbians. The difficulties are theoretical, methodological, and evidential. And evidential meaning like in the evidence that we have in the texts, in the material culture, etc. The two extremes of the theoretical spectrum are the essentialist position, which holds that sexuality or sexual orientation is natural and innate to human beings and constant over time and space. The contrary and more widely held view is that of social constructionists, or social construction, constructionism, whatever. This school holds that sexual identity and the individual's understanding of herself as a sexual being is deeply rooted within the structures of a given society or historical period. Consequently, the very notion of sexuality and gay or lesbian identity is a modern construction that requires certain social, economic, and political conditions that did not develop until the 17th to 18th centuries for men and as late as the 20th century for women. I feel like a sensible solution to that would be somewhere in between those two extremes, because neither of those really fully tracks. Yes, and I, I would agree with you there. And as Murray says, for the medievalist, neither of these perspectives is entirely satisfactory. And I would like to point out here that the like the identity of a lesbian came, quote, as late as the 20th century is ridiculous because as we talked about in the last article, the word lesbian for a queer woman or a woman loving woman occurs first before the word gay was used. So I would not say that lesbianism as like an identity is later than male queer sexuality, but that's just me positing a thought. And there's only so much we can get from terminology anyway, because the terminology was different. Like, yep. Even the words heterosexual and homosexual are only like, what, 150 years old? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's it's all very, very, very recent. Okay, so for some highlights, I guess I'll just go through this and I'll just do a very like high, high overview here. Da, 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 da. The patriarchal nature of medieval society hides and distorts so much information about the lives of women, especially affective and erotic aspects of their experience. Far fewer sources are available than for male homosexuality. Consequently, the notion of a lesbian continuum allows a more nuanced understanding of women's relationships. Again, this is sort of like Bennett's lesbian-like idea. Is the lesbian continuum in any way related to the Q continuum? Is that a, is that a Star Trek reference? That is a Star Trek. Sorry, yes, I, I got it. it. I got it. <laughs> I'm very proud of myself for that one. I have seen Next Generation with Q. Okay. In his letter to the Romans, the Apostle Paul wrote, For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. The women exchanged natural relations for unnatural, 
and the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in their own persons due penalty for their error. This oblique reference to unnatural relations- Wait, this is Paul? What, what book is this? This is, it's one of the epistles. She has cited it quite obviously, but she doesn't, she doesn't list it. Do you want me to look it up? I can look it up. I think it would be important in case we travel back to the first century, then we know where to go to party. True. This is in reference to, like, Lot, I believe, as well. This is in Romans. Oh. Romans one twenty six. Well, that does sound like something the Romans would do. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. All right. So he's referencing Sodom and Gomorrah here. Oh, okay. Well, we already knew that was where to go to party. Yes. So while some scholars have suggested that Paul, and I'm quoting here, while some scholars have suggested that Paul was not referring to female homosexuality, but rather to women who indulge in what might be termed heterosexual perversions, nevertheless, this passage is generally interpreted as referring to sexual lesbian activity. Paul wrote in a period in which Roman society condemned female homoeroticism as an attempt by women to usurp the place of men in a strictly delineated gender hierarchy. Again, this is that top-bottom distinction that we've talked about before. John Boswell has proposed an alternate interpretation to Romans 1.26. That is what we just quoted, which is relevant to the understanding of homosexuality and lesbianism in the early church. Boswell argues that in this passage, Paul was not condemning gay people, but rather heterosexuals who engaged in homosexual activity. Rather than condemning outright homosexual activity, he suggests Paul was criticizing people who acted against their true natures or dispositions. Boswell concludes, It cannot be inferred from this that Paul considered mere homoerotic attraction or practice morally reprehensible. This generous and non-judgmental interpretation of Paul, however, remains marginal, and most scholars accept the understanding that Romans 1 condemned male homosexual outright and very likely condemned female homosexuality as well. Which is silly. Why are we even listening to Paul? He didn't even meet Jesus. What does he know? I mean, technically, he was actually the only other one who did. Technically. I thought he didn't convert until after Jesus was dead. Yes, but but on the road to Damascus, he was Saul, and then God, like, bamfed him, and he saw God, and God condemned him for persecuting the Christians and the Jews, and he was like, oh, shit, and then became Paul. Right. But, like, that doesn't include him hanging out with Jesus and finding out no. what Jesus' opinions on stuff are. Correct, but he did like, come face to authority? face with God. Like, that is... Yeah, the one thing. Christian scholars will take you down on that point. I don't know. I, I really think that uh, if it were that important, Jesus or or one of the apostles would have said something about it. Yeah, fair enough. So anyway, I thought that was interesting because I had never been exposed to that interpretation. But you really can read the text in that way. The women exchanged natural relations for unnatural, and the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Again, this... If you're living in an understanding of the world of there is only heterosexuals, then unnatural would obviously be homosexual. But if you exist in a society like we do, where natural can be men loving men and women loving women, then he's not directly condemning that here, which I thought was interesting. Moving on. Augustine, our wonderful friend Augustine, that I have problems with anyway. Who was bi, by the way, like Augustine engaged very heavily in queer sex as a young man. Is this Augustine of Hippo, the yes. chastity incontinence but not yet guy? Yes. 
So he writes in a letter to a community of nuns in 423, quote, The love between you should not be earthly, but spiritual. For the things which shameless women do, even to other women, in low jokes and games, are to be avoided, not only by widows and chaste handmaids of Christ, living under a holy rule of life, but also entirely by married women and maidens destined for marriage. Which, like, holy sh**. <laughs> I feel like that's that's definitely some evidence, because, like, he wouldn't bother to say this if there weren't... Finagling? If everyone in the community were already living chastely, he wouldn't have to say anything. Exactly. Exactly. If they weren't already canoodling, he wouldn't have to write about don't do the canoodle. So I think that's very interesting. Also, the low jokes and games thing just makes me feel like Augustine, like you're talking about locker room talk. Like this is this is locker room talk. I don't think that's how like personally, I think men and women speak very differently about sex. But it just feels weird that, like, low jokes and games is how he phrased that to me. Mm-hmm. Just wigs me out. Anyway, moving on, we have a couple other notes. Later writers, Donatus of, this is French, it's got the little C with the tail that I don't know how to pronounce. So, uh, Donatus of Besancon, we'll go with that. Probably. Yeah. <laughs> Future Mac here. I was curious and I looked it up. The sedilla, which is what you call that little tail, I knew that part. Apparently, in French, a C with a sedilla is pronounced like an English S. So it's Besançon. Here is where I would normally criticize French orthography, despite English orthography being also a mess. But y'all can just fill in the blank there. Imagine I said something clever. Warned nuns against what now might be called particular friendships. Quote, None that take the hand of another or call the other little girl. It is forbidden, lest any take the hand of another for delight or stand or walk around or sit together. She who does so will be be improved with twelve blows. I'm not sure that improves someone. Yeah, no. And any who is called little girl or one who calls the other little girl forty blows if they transgress. So... Just gonna, like, you know, the whole baby girl thing. Yeah, interesting pet name choice there. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Older than we thought. This is 7th century. 7th century. So, that's fun. Not just, not just like, sister, but, like, little sister. That is very strange to me that that's <laughs> old. So I thought that was very interesting. Also because, like, there are tons of Christian colleges who still have sororities where, like, in the the fraternal like fraternity and sorority system you have your bigs and your littles like mentors and yeah, i don't know that's all of them i think yeah, not just yeah. christian right but but christian colleges still have that institution oh, like that system and it's like oh well okay that like this sort of language was being condemned in the 7th century but now it's it's been integrated into our language and society and so bigs and littles is 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 fine but anyway, I thought that was interesting that we have a direct call out of like, don't call each other like little girl. Don't have that particular friendship, so to speak. Here we go. This is actually very interesting to me. This is about how nuns should sleep. Each should sleep in a separate bed and they should accept bedding according to the arrangements of the couches as the mother directs. So like where you sleep in the room. 
It is possible that all should sleep in one place, that is to say, the same room. But if they, if large numbers or room space does not allow this, they should rest by tens and twenties with the elders who have charge of them. Lights should burn in each chamber until daybreak. So, like, it's lit. They should sleep clothed and their girdles bound and always ready for divine service with all gravity and modesty. And when the signal is given, each should hurry and get back to the work of God with no delay in the day. They should not have the younger sisters with them in bed, but be joined by elders or groups. Rising, they should exhort each other to the work of God against the excuses of the sleepy. This sounds like a very difficult environment to actually get any sleep in. Yes. But it's very interesting to me, and Murray makes this point as well, that you are all sleeping together, but in separate beds in one room that is constantly lit, fully closed. So yeah, that's that does seem like there's there's a purpose behind that decision. Yes. That's not how you would normally sleep. Right. And so like maybe the fully clothed thing is more like okay, according to the rule of the order, you have you get up at, you know, Vespers or whatever. Or I guess it would be Prem and get up and do basically like midnight prayer. Like maybe that's just part of it. That I understand, but it's very interesting how this is sort of the um gosh, what's that prison called where it's a it's a the big circle? Yes. And the theory behind that is that there's a watchtower in the middle and then all the jail cells are in a circle around it. And you cannot see into the watchtower, but the watchtower can always look out and see you. It's that same sort of vibe that I'm getting. Yeah, everyone can see you. Yeah. Or at least at someone's watching all the time. You can yeah. never be sure no one's watching. Yeah. So take that as you will. I just thought that was interesting. I would be very curious to see if that's also how it works in monasteries. I think this is probably like a hopefully a universal between the two. Like, I don't think the orders would split that by gender. But anyway, I thought that was interesting. Either way, it is extra weird when you remember that the normal practice in the Middle Ages was to sleep naked. Yep. So like, like nowadays you could go like, oh, well, yeah, you know, it's it's a little weird that you're wearing your street clothes instead of your pajamas. But like, no, it's weirder if we haven't invented pajamas. Yeah, it's very strange. So anyway, finally, we get to the penitential. So this is from the penitential of Theodore. And it is one of the few penitentials that make specific and separate mention of female homosexual activity. This is Canons 12, 13, and 14. If a woman practices vice with a woman, she shall do penance for three years. If she practices solitary vice, that is, masturbates, she shall do penance for the same period, so three years. The penance of a widow and a girl is the same. She who has a husband deserves greater penalty if she commits fornication. So... Take that it seems very you know. strict that solitary vice is three years. That should not be on the same level, I feel. Murray makes a point of that. The juxtaposition of sexual lesbian activity and masturbation is significant and highlights the primacy of a phallocentric understanding of human sexuality in contemporary thought. Oh, that's a good point. It is the absence of the male partner that unites conceptually masturbation and lesbian sexual activity. So it's not as bad. But you know what is bad? If she commits the solitary vice and has a husband. Because a man is involved. Right. That's interesting. Yeah. Now, is it because it's infidelity? Or is it just that, like... But is is getting a wank off infidelity? Oh, good point. Yeah. But huh. it's the same. It's the same. Like... If you get your rocks off with your neighbor, or you do it by yourself, it's the same penalty. This is a very counterintuitive penitential structure. Yeah. So, that's interesting. And that's just woman with woman. That's not specifically nuns or sisters. 
But let's see, we do also have the penitential of bead, which extends the discussion of lesbian relations from laywomen to nuns. So here we go. If nuns with a nun using an instrument, seven years of penance. That's it. That's that's what we get. So like a, a, a piano or like, what are we talking? <laughs> a dildo is the typical thought. <laughs> that is That is the typical thought here. Murray says that there is nothing in this passage to indicate whether the increased severity of the penance was due to the participants' status as religious women or if it was the use of an instrument that accompanied the harsher penance. I think I read in a different article a uh, a quote from a penitentiary that did specify, like, you get extra time if yes. you used an instrument. We have covered that one before. There's also... Oh, yes, and we, we continue here. This is a Carolingian writer, Hinkmar of Reims, which, what a name. Yeah, heck of a name. Yeah. They do not put flesh to flesh in the sense of their genital organ, of one body with the other, since nature precludes this, like, no scissoring, that doesn't really work. <laughs> Does it not? I mean, I, I obviously have no way to know this firsthand. Well, Hinkmar didn't think it did. But to transform the use of the member in question into an unnatural one, in that they are reported to use certain instruments of diabolical operation to excite desire. Thus they sin nonetheless by committing fornification against their own bodies. I think instrument of diabolical operation <laughs> would be a great nickname for like a vibrator. You know? Or a Twitter handle. Yeah. All right. And Murray concludes here, ultimately, female sexual activity was not taken seriously insofar as it threatened male privilege or the natural hierarchy of genders. Basically, if you used a dildo or an instrument, then it was worse. But generally, it's like, okay, cool, do three years penance. It's not, not so bad. It's worse if you cheat on your husband. So the bigger crime is basically appropriating masculinity in some way. Yes, basically. Actually, this, this goes very well into our next point made by Hildegard von Bingen. Um, here's what she says. And a woman who takes up devilish ways and plays a male role in coupling with another woman is most vile in my sight, and so she who subjects herself to such a one in this evil deed. For they should have been ashamed of their passion, and instead they impudently usurped a right which was not theirs. And having put themselves into alien ways, they are to me transformed and contemptible. So that is Hildegard's quote-unquote official stance. Now, I'm just going to say, like, I, I did read another article while I was researching for this episode that pretty convincingly made a case that Hildegard had a thing going with one of her junior nuns. She might have. And so it's very interesting that we have this here. I'm going to say it's possible to read that as... Because since Hildegard is speaking of it in the language of, like, taking an inappropriate role, mm -hmm. like, maybe she is only thinking of the instruments. Right. And if you don't use one, then, like, that's, that's fine, fine with her. Yeah. That's one interpretation of what she says here. Yeah. So interesting. I think it's interesting that, like, we have evidence that she was, I guess, performative in some way, where she had to perform the role of no 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 that's not chill while she very clearly had deep relationships with other women in her convent in lesbian or lesbian like behavior so that's interesting either way mm -hmm. okay and before we conclude because i could conclude already because we covered the penitentials but this article did have some cures for lesbian desires would you like to hear about the cures 
I'm deeply worried about what the cures might be. <laughs> All right, here we go. A 9th century Arabic treatise attributed to Galen provided recipes for, quote, drugs which make women detest lesbianism, even if they madly lust for it. The treatise also included contemporary recipes for, quote, drugs that make lesbianism so desirable to women that they would keep busy with it and passionately lust it and forget all about their work. So there's drugs for both. Uh, I'm, hmm, that, hmm, that sounds less like something that should be in a medical treatise and more like someone's fetish, I'm just gonna say. Drugs that make you gay or make you straight, like that's, I'm sure there's porn of that. Oh, oh, guaranteed. The reader is assured that if tricked into carrying the potion in her vagina, the woman will continue in a state of passion and excitement for six months. This is absolutely someone's fetish. I don't know how you're getting it in there, but... Is it is it in a vial or is are you? I think just you just pour really it in. <laughs> I think you pour it in. You got to do your kegels, you know. <laughs> I don't know, Mac. This is what it says. Oh, uh, here we go. Here we go. <laughs> if all the stars are in masculine signs, women would be rendered virile and quote act as if their female friends were their wives. Another treatise suggested that masculine women were more active and intelligent, as well as more promiscuous and more dangerous to men. And we have a quote for this one. Quote, There is a certain category of women who surpass others in intelligence and subtlety. There is a great deal of the masculine in their nature, to such extent that, in their movements and in the tone of their voice, they bear a certain resemblance to men. They also like being the active partner. A woman like this is capable of vanquishing the man who lets her. When her desire is aroused, she does not shrink from seduction. When she has no desire, she is not ready for sexual intercourse. This places her in a delicate situation with regard to the desires of men and leads her to sapphism. These women sound cool. We should hang out with them. Right? They're, they're smart, they're butch, they're assertive. Like, yeah. They, they sound great. It sounds amazing. So I thought that was interesting. So I And I think this is like, if we combine the two ideas that like some women are quote unquote more masculine and this idea that like when the stars are aligned, does that mean like if you're born under, if you're born as a woman under a masculine star sign, you're innately like a more masculine woman and like, what does that mean? Like, you're you're going to grow up to be a butch? You're going to grow up to be a tomboy? The sphere of the fixed stars has transed your gender. I guess, man. Like, bro, like, what is going on here? Like, this is wild to me. And what's worse is that these guys are not like, oh, yeah, obviously these women, like, they had no idea of masculinity or femininity as one, a social construct, or two, on a spectrum. And so they're like... Yeah, if a woman wants to be on top, she's vying for f***ing dominance. That's crazy to me. That is, yeah, huh. Wait, wait, did they literally mean physically on top? Yes. Well, if she's the active partner, then she's capable of vanquishing the man. Like, if she's not a pillow princess, then she's capable of vanquishing a man. Which, like, honestly, kind of hot. Yeah, yeah, I wasn't going to be the first to say it. I'll say it. (laughs) Like, I don't know, like having an active partner, that's kind of a cool thing. Depends on what you're into. I appreciate a woman who's capable of vanquishing a man. Yeah. And the other part of it here is, 
I'm thinking about all the medieval men who are more like bottoms and who are into that. And they're like, yeah, I'm gonna get me a masculine lady. I'm gonna get me a, a lady who can vanquish me. Gotta do her horoscope first. Yeah, maybe that's what it is. Maybe all these dudes were running around like, are you a Capricorn? <laughs> like, let's reverse this trend. <laughs> that's what it is, folks. All these, all these uh, women going around asking what your star sign is. They're trying to they're trying to see if you're a masculine man or more of a feminine man. That's what it is. <laughs> That's the best theory that I've got. I'm running with that. Anyway, yeah. Butches will be butches is basically the uh the conclusion here. There's two more and then we'll conclude with this one. Two medical disorders have relevance to this discussion. Some writers following Galen believed that the suffocation of the womb was caused by the buildup of seed in a woman who was deprived of intercourse and had no means to emit the seed. Because remember, women also like had seed according to mm -hmm. medieval sexuality. Oh, oh, right, 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 right. Yeah. So if you can't like, if a woman didn't get off enough and like female ejaculate, which is a thing, but the medieval writers thought about it in a very different way. So anyway. If a lady didn't get off, then she could have like a buildup in her and uh, that can cause, <laughs> that can cause, I guess, lesbianism. But let's see what else Galen says. The secrets of women think that menses and seed are the same thing. Maybe that's what's going on. Ooh, here. that's interesting. That seems very uninformed. I've, you could say that about the entire text. I mean, yeah, true, true. Okay, so Galen recommends that midwives place a hot poultice on the woman's genitals and cause the woman to experience an orgasm, which would release the retained seed. Later writers could not only easily accept Galen's prescription that a midwife masturbate the patient until she experienced orgasm. Such a cure was obviously in conflict with Christian doctrine. Instead, authors such as William of Salicetto, Salicetto in the 13th century advised marriage as cure for a suffocation of the womb. Wow, she can't great, get off on great. her own. She's got to get a man to do it for her. Gradually, the treatment for this ailment was modified to harmonize with the church's moral code and prescriptions for female masturbation disappeared from medical treatises. Personal note here, until the 1900s in which hysteria was, I was, thinking was about treated that, yeah. by masturbation, which is very interesting to me. Wasn't that when vibrators were originally invented? For yes. Treating of hysteria? Yes. I actually have a 1901 Sears and Roebuck catalog in which the inside page of the, like, the very, very first page is, like, vibrators that are, like, belts that, like, strap underneath. It's wild. It's absolutely wild. Why do you wild. have this catalog? I like vintage stuff. The okay. catalog is not <laughs> exclusively vibrators. It's a Sears and Roebuck catalog of literally everything. But the first page just happened to be vibrators, like, right there. And I was like, oh, Okay. 13-year-old me was not ready for that. I was not saying, like, why do you have a catalog of vibrators? I was more thinking, <laughs> why do you have a catalog from 1901? I like vintage stuff. It's interesting. Okay, so the other female disease, which is ragadia of the womb, was also linked to lesbianism. This, too, was based on the teaching of Greek medical writers. Regadii were fleshy growths believed to be caused by the friction during intercourse or a difficult childbirth. They would sometimes grow outside the vagina, forming, oh no, forming a penis-like protuberance, 
It was thought that women with such growths used them to have sexual intercourse with other women. William did not moralize his discussion of the disease. The perpetuation of notions that women with, quote, penises could have intercourse with other women, however, did reinforce the predominant phallocentric worldview. What, like hyenas? I guess. So, there you go. Which, are like, they just these pathologizing, are just like, people with a prominent clitoris? Is that what's happening here? No, like, this is something that you could grow, like... But I guess these are just like fleshy growths or cysts or something like that. Like these are not, it's not a, it's not a, but because some women grew them, they're like, clearly, clearly this is a penis. So go figure. So anyway, that is what I had for Murray, which talks, I guess, in stark contrast to the more positive tone of Bennett and the lesbian light. This very clearly shows a condemning view of lesbianism in the Middle Ages. But I did think this was interesting because we do clearly have evidence for nuns getting it on and also cures and drugs, I guess, for sapphism. Does it say how to make the drugs? I could look up the treatise. The article does not cite it, but I could I could look it up. But yeah, there we go. Gonna mentally file that away as our next weird medieval concoction to try. Yeah, let me. Uh, the drugs that make you gay. I'll find her citation. Okay, so on to yours. Yes. All right, so I have an entirely different article. This is from the book Trans and Gender Queer Subjects in Medieval Hagiography. Oh, hell yes. Yes. This is not about hagiography, though. This is. A little off theme, but I found it much more interesting. As we were kind of talking about in our previous episode, like a lot of the times when people are doing queer readings of literature, Mm -hmm. there's a point at which you go, like, is this in the text or is this just an intellectual exercise? Right. Like it gets very lit crit. Yeah. Yeah. Very much. And I didn't read the whole book, so I'm not going to say like, oh, it's all like that. But the other articles I found there were until I found this one, which is like all the way on the other side of the spectrum. And I think it's much more interesting. Perfect. And just for our listeners, for those of you who are unfamiliar with this word, a hagiography is a saint's life, just a recorded history of a saint's life. And we have already covered one trans saint already, Marius. Yes, in our previous Pride episode. It was Marinos, listeners. But Marius is actually impressively close, considering this was two years ago. Zoe has a better memory than I do. Yep, so check that one out. It's super cool. Yeah, but like I said, this one is not about hagiography. It's just about trans and genderqueer subjects. Hell yeah. It is entitled, The Queerly Departed, Narratives of Veneration in the Burials of Late Iron Age Scandinavia by Lee Colwell. So cool. Right? That sounds oh, good. I'm stoked. Okay. All right. So I'm, I'm going to read some bits and like summarize other bits. You know, you know how it is. Hell yeah. But I'm going to start by reading Cole Will's opening two paragraphs directly because they're very good and touch on some things that we've mentioned before too. Appropriation of the medieval period, and especially the history of pre-Christian Scandinavia for white supremacist ends, is well attested. And is currently increasing in this day and age, and we will stand against it till our dying breaths. And after. Yes. Right, this article was published in 2021, so... So recent! Colwell is talking about, like, what we're seeing Right now. (laughs) Modern... 
Volkish groups, nationalist and ethnocentric Norse neo-pagans, have also used their own idealized views of the early history of Scandinavia to justify cis and heteronormative approaches to gender roles in the modern day. Ideas about white supremacy and gender essentialism often go hand in hand. That's the stupidest way to enforce gender roles that I've ever heard, but okay. Is there a smart way to enforce gender roles? Because there's not really, like, a reasonable grounding for it. That's, that's, that's fair. That's like, fair. it's always going to be built on nonsense. Yeah. Ugh, really? You're going to go with Vikings? Anyway, okay. One way of disrupting this paradigm is to emphasize the ways in which gender in pre-Christian Scandinavia was far queerer in all senses of the word than the traditional narrative acknowledges. This chapter seeks to challenge the ahistorical idea, still widespread in the popular imagination, that late Iron Age Scandinavia, the area of modern-day Denmark, Norway, and Sweden in approximately the 8th to the 10th century CE, was a homogenous place where white men lived lives defined by hypermasculine aggression, white women were confined to the domestic sphere, and queer people and people of color were nowhere to be seen. In recent decades, a number of scholars have attempted to counteract this view, exploring, among other topics, the construction of race in Icelandic sagas, the potential for queer readings of Norse mythology, and the varied forms of masculinity and femininity seen in the written sources. I'm now moving to a quick paraphrase. The article then says, to make this point, they are going to discuss four burials from 9th and 10th century Scandinavia in detail. I'm so excited for this. But first, a point about how archaeologists have traditionally determined the sex of human remains, which I will also read. Archaeological sexing is far from a fail-safe tool, particularly for exploring the often intangible concept of identities. Remains are sexed osteologically, by examining the size and shape of the bones, or on the basis of genomic analysis, called genomic or chromosomal sexing, and assigned to a particular sex, most frequently a binary male-female one on this basis. The inaccuracy of such an approach has been criticized by numerous gender archaeologists for its frequent disregard of the possibility of intersex remains, which is an excellent point. Yeah, I never thought about that. Yeah. Because, how, like, how are you going to determine that? Because there's not, there's usually no fleshy remains left to determine that information from. Right. And if you're just going like, all right, based on our chromosome sample, do we call this male or female? Like mm -hmm. there is a there's a there's a spectrum in between that. Yep. Yep. Not to mention its essentialist focus on the physical body over social identity. Moreover, it is virtually impossible to accurately assign sex to children and adolescents based on osteological sexing alone, calling into further doubt the value of dividing remains into strict binary categories to begin with. Wow, I didn't know that. I didn't know that you can't really tell, like, the sex of a kid. Yeah, they're still maturing. Yeah, they haven't developed. That's so cool. Genomic sexing is likewise not the magic bullet it is often presented as, offering a ratio of X and Y chromosomes from which a chromosomal arrangement is extrapolated. As Skoglund et al. point out, chromosomal arrangements other than XY and XX are difficult to detect by this method. Like, it just doesn't work if your subject is intersex. That's so interesting. Throughout this chapter, the term sex is used in reference to the characteristics of the physical body that Western medicine has deemed to be either, quote, male or, quote, female. Given that questions of internal identity can only ever be speculative when it comes to burials, gender here is used in the sense of social gender, a role produced in social contexts requiring both performance and interpretation. 
And I do want to point out here that this, in large part, is not like modern archaeologists' fault because mm. most people do fall within the male female like quote unquote binary that's still the majority of folks and those mm. majority of folks more or less do have physical characteristics in their bone structure blah 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 now this does not excuse anything but i will say that like when you're an archaeologist and all you have is bones of course it's going to be very difficult to figure out what identity a person had there is also as as comes up every time we talk about things in academia there's a staffing issue we don't have the funding (laughs) and people to do these things yes so most remains have not been chromosomally sexed yep most haven't even been osteologically sexed yep most of the time when sex is assigned to remains it's based on what's in the grave which obviously gets a bit circular and we're gonna talk Talk about about that that later in this article yeah And yeah, again, staffing and funding. So by default, all the burials we're going to be discussing here are elaborate and deliberate burials of high-status persons because simple burials of regular folk are harder to identify and trace. Non-organic grave goods are pretty important to the archaeology. If you're not buried with, like, metal and stuff, Mm -hmm. then it's going to be hard to find you. Ah, And here's, here's the bit that I was just saying we were going to get to. When it comes to exploring gender identity through grave goods, it is difficult to avoid the sort of circular reasoning which declares, for example, quote, Oval brooches are items of female dress, so graves containing them must be women's graves. We know oval brooches are items of female dress because we find them in women's graves. Oh, that's so bad. It's just hard. That's so hard. Right, but until you develop the technology to more accurately sex these remains, that was for a long time just how you had to do it. Yep. And so you'd end up with like, well, there's no archaeological evidence for female warriors in Scandinavia because swords are only found in men's graves. How do we know they're men's graves? They've got swords in them. They've got swords in them. Yeah, clearly. Anyway, continuing. A partial solution to the problem is offered by increasingly accurate methods of osteological sexing, although, as noted above, such methods are often inadequate when it comes to recognizing intersex remains. However, when gender is decoupled from sex, as many archaeologists argue it should be in order to more fully understand past societies, approaches that rely on the physical body do not suffice. Here, the idea of normative domains can be quite useful. If we have grave goods, which in the vast majority of cases are found with remains of one particular osteological sex, it is reasonable to conclude that this society associated these items with a particular gender, and that they viewed this gender as largely linked to the sexed body. Unfortunately, when it comes to material from the Iron Age, many graves excavated in the 19th and early 20th centuries have only been sexed on the basis of grave goods, rather than through osteological analysis, making it extremely difficult to build an accurate picture of which grave goods should be associated with a given sex. So basically, the, the like idea there is, okay, if we can show that, say, oval brooches are more often found in the graves of women than in the graves of men, then if we find an oval brooch in a man's grave, we know there's something unusual and gendering going on here. Yeah. However, we can't actually do that because we haven't properly sexed all these remains, so we don't have the data to say these are mostly found in. Yep, yep. Yeah. And I think what's really, really important to emphasize here as well is that 
when people do not take the time to do this kind of sexing at the site when things are going on, as, you know, things are being discovered, found, whatever you want to call it, those sites don't just sit there. They're moved. They're moved to museums or like, London has had this problem forever. Like anytime they want to build something new, they find a new Viking site or a new Roman site or whatever right there. And so, okay, everything has to be halted. The archaeologists have to come in. They have to get everything out and figure all that stuff out. And then the thing can go up. But because businesses have more money than institutions, that process is very, very, very fast. And it can't be as thorough. So it's worth keeping in mind here that it's not like we can go back and sex these sites and these individuals because quite frankly they don't exist anymore because part of archaeology and like i don't know how to feel about this but part of archaeology is inherently destructive it's true although i do think that most of the skeletal remains are in fact in boxes somewhere yes yes 100 percent. but like when you don't have like the integrity of the site like you may have a picture of it but, yeah. you know, like, okay, where was this brooch placed? Where was blah, blah, blah? Like, I think that provides a lot of valuable information, which we don't currently have. And we can't go yeah. back and get it. <laughs> yeah, we often do have to kind of rely on whatever diagrams the excavation team created. put together. Yeah. So just keeping that in mind as well is that we don't have the data and we can't go back and get the data. We can only do better in the future. All right. There's one last section before we get to the specific burials. And... I'm going to read most of it. I'm only skipping a few paragraphs here and there because I think it's interesting and I think y'all will think it's interesting and it's possible that Zoe will have something to say about this because it does kind of go into her area of expertise. Oh. As three of the graves discussed below have been interpreted as those of Sather practitioners, it is worth pausing here to give a brief overview of what is meant by the term Sather. Yes. Magic. Yeah, we're talking about magic. In written sources from medieval Scandinavia, all of which significantly post-date the region's conversion to Christianity, this word is used to mean magic, frequently in a pejorative sense, and is often found in accounts of magic performed in Scandinavia before the conversion. There are only a handful of detailed accounts of what Sather might have involved. The most in-depth of these are Inglingasaga, an account of the legendary kings of Scandinavian prehistory, and Eric Sagarauda, which is the saga of Eric the Red, which we read. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, because there was the priestess. Yes. Yeah. So that's what they're talking about. Yep, yep. Which features an episode of magic and counter-magic in the Norse settlement in Greenland. Both of these accounts present Sather practitioners as occupying respected positions in society, with the Odin of Inglinga Saga presented as a human warrior, ruler, and powerful sorcerer, while Thorbjörg Little Witch... Uh, the Scandinavian was Little Vulva, but Little Witch is a pretty accurate translation. Vulva is more prophetess than witch, but whatever. Mm-hmm. Thorbjorg in Eric's saga is the possessor of many fine objects, treated as an honored guest wherever she visits. However, both sagas evince a certain amount of discomfort with these figures' magical practices. When Thorbjorg requests the assistance of a woman who knows chance conducive to her magic, the only such woman present tells her that she is unwilling to take part because she is a good Christian. Mm-hmm, that's right. Yeah. In Inglinga Saga, the author's distaste for Sather is more apparent. Here, Odin's magical talents include the malicious ability to cause sickness and madness in men. We are told that Sather was taught to Odin by Freya, 
usually considered a goddess, but here called a blotgyuda, or a sacrificial priestess. And that the practice, quote, brought with it so much perversity that it was thought shameful for men to practice it, unquote. But not women, because women are inherently shamed? Shameful? Well, there is a gender thing, which is why this is coming up. Right. Okay, I'm interested. I'm interested. This does not appear to have dissuaded Odin, and other sources attest to his sather working. In the mythological poem Lokasena, for example, the troublesome god Loki accuses Odin of having performed magic chants and, quote, beaten a drum like a witch, and that I thought a mark of perversity. See, to me, that's like, okay, is that a gender thing, or is that because the magic is evil and shit? That's my question. There's been a lot of trend towards, like, it sounds like a gender thing. Right. Okay. Fair enough. To summarize the next bit, since all surviving accounts of Sather come from the post-conversion era, it's difficult to be certain exactly what it entailed. It may or may not be a shamanic practice. We don't know. Mm-hmm. It seems to have definitely involved, however, some sort of gender transgression, but the nature and degree of that transgression is unknown. Quick quotation. This has often been conceptualized by scholars as a practitioner gaining power for the duration of a sather ritual by transgressing binary gender categories, though Miriam Maybird has argued that power was instead gained through more continuous occupation of a liminal gender position. Though later written narratives treat the practice of sather as despicable for its association with improper gendered behavior, this does not accord with the archaeological record. The graves of those suspected to be sather practitioners are often highly elaborate, deliberately emphasizing their inhabitants' magical prowess rather than seeking to hide it as a shameful secret. Mm -hmm. We'll provide a citation for Maybird's article in the show notes. I saw her give a really excellent presentation at Kalamazoo a couple years ago, so when she was cited here, I tracked down and read that article as well, and it's good, but it's also very long. I want to point out something here, that the two people who we are citing for Seithor practice are both extremely powerful people, that is to say, Odin, yeah, and also a priestess who is known in the saga as being, like, the little witch, like, that's her thing. And when she shows up and starts doing her thing, she is well-honored. She is well-treated. Yeah, they have a whole thing of, like, we have to get this properly set up for her. We have to welcome her into our home. We have to make sure everything's just right. I wonder if it has anything to do with, like, maybe, like, the taboo of... And this is an analogy here. Like, I'm making a comparison to, like, an undertaker, for instance. Like, this is someone that you would want to respect, someone who is powerful, someone who does something that you can't necessarily do, but also, like, they're associated with some taboos that we just don't want to mess with. That would be an interesting interpretation, yeah. Just given that they're very clearly honored, the graves are very well decorated, but also there's still this sort of pejorative quality around it. Yeah. Interesting. All right, but let's get into the archaeology. The first burial we'll be discussing is the Oseberg ship burial in Vestfold, Norway, from about 834. That may sound familiar, not only because it's one of the most famous medieval Scandinavian burials, but because we also mentioned it in our 420 special episode last year. Oh, hell yeah. All right. All right. So quoting a bit from the description of this one. 
The grandeur of the burial originally led it to be identified as that of a queen, perhaps the legendary Queen Ausa, mentioned in Inglinga Saga as ruling part of southern Norway in the 9th century. However, more recent studies of the grave have rejected this identification. Instead, it is generally accepted that this is the grave of at least one magic worker, and perhaps two. This interpretation is based on the presence of a number of items in the grave, perhaps most obviously a wooden rod or staff of the kind often associated with Sather. The fact that this was accompanied by cannabis seeds, potentially used to induce a trance-like state, and metal rattles. Ooh. Yeah. Rattles. I like that. All right. Which may have played a part in the ritual performance of Sather, suggests the community at Oseberg wished to remember these people as ritual specialists. This view is also supported by the fragments of tapestry which survive from the burial, which show figures in long robes, some with the heads of animals, apparently directing human sacrifice. Now I'm going to read the whole next bit because I find it very evocative. I'm not going to do this with every burial that this article talks about, but this one's good. Considering the sense of supernatural significance evoked by this burial, the time it took to create is particularly relevant to the narrative underlying the grave. There has been considerable debate on this matter, with some archaeologists arguing that the differences between the fore and aft halves of the mound indicate that the aft half of the ship was covered first, while the foredeck, along with access to the burial chamber, was left exposed for many months or even years. Hmm. Someone whose name I don't know how to pronounce. I'm just going to go f- take Go guess. for it. Terje Gansom argues that this would have allowed the local community to continue to visit their dead. This idea is supported by the anchoring of the ship to a large rock as part of the burial process, suggesting that, despite their burial on a means of transportation, it was hoped that these two people would continue to be a presence in their community after death. However, evocative as this interpretation is, Sebjörg Wallacher Nordides, long name. Cool name. Re-examination of the original excavation reports concludes that this supposed visitation could not have taken place as all botanical evidence from the turf as well as the contents of the sacrificial animal's stomachs points to the entire construction taking place in autumn. Mm. Okay, really quick. Yeah. Actually, we'll do it later, but just like star that section because I want to come back to that visual of what the grave looks like. Right, it's very good. That is so cool. So like star that or something because I want to come back to that. The description keeps going, and it's still interesting, so I'm going to continue there. Yes. Even proponents of the idea of a months-long ritual acknowledge that when the time came to seal up the burial, this was done with almost unseemly haste. In contrast to the careful construction of the ship itself, the entry to the central chamber was boarded up with mismatched pieces of wood, in some cases hammered in with such rapidity that the nails broke and were left in the wood. Moreover, the offerings on the foredeck seem to have been piled up in a careless fashion, with no effort made to protect the more delicate items from the heavier ones thrown on top. This stands in sharp contrast to the level of care and respect needed to offer up a spectacular ship, numerous animals, and many rare and valuable items, not to mention the investment of time and labor needed to construct a mound to cover a 21.6-meter ship. The rock the Oseberg ship was anchored to also takes on a more ambiguous meaning. Did the people who constructed the burial want to keep these two individuals in the community? Or did they more specifically want to ensure that they remained inside the mound? 
I love that shit. The speed with which the bodies were sealed away under multiple layers of wood and turf points towards the latter. I love that shit. Right? That's some Barrow White's Tolkien shit. I love that. Okay. <laughs> the sumptuous components of the burial set against the hasty, almost slapdash actions taken apparently at the conclusion of the initial funerary rites tells a narrative of both veneration and fear. At Oseberg, we see both a deliberate deconstruction of the natural order and a breaking down of categories. A hill raised by human hands. A ship on land, tethered and immobile. Two figures whose dead bodies command both immense respect and terrible fear. The narrative told here is therefore not one of straightforward admiration, but rather of the powerful mix of emotions that can come from interaction with the supernatural. See, again, I'm getting that, like, we need them in our community, we respect them, we are also terrified of them, and they have taboos that we don't want to touch. Yeah. And speaking of the taboos, here's the queer part. Quoting directly again, I have so far avoided gendering the two people interred at Oseberg because it is my contention that the older of these individuals could plausibly be read as transgender, in modern terms at least. Hot take! And like, let me let me put this out there for for those of you who are not scholars. Like, this is a very very hot take to put out there in yes. academia. Like yes, a, absolutely. Like a dangerously hot take to a point. Yes, I would describe it as radical. Yes, dangerous is probably the wrong term, especially given like what queer and transgender individuals have to face. But like, it's a radical take. Yeah. Yeah, I feel like the biggest danger is that like some other scholar will like sniff dismissively at it. Right. Well, I don't know. There are some scholars who, like, try and oust others from the field due to their hot takes. But anyway. I think most of those guys are aging out anyway. Good. But anyway, continuing. Although the recovered remains are incomplete, both skeletons have been osteologically sexed as female. Which, this isn't dwelt on, but both those skeletons, which have been osteologically sexed as female, are sharing the, like, bedchamber on the ship's deck. Ooh! Or, like, the tent right. that, contain- that contains both of them, yeah. Yeah, they're, they're together. So it might be possible that regardless of the older individual's gender, there is some, something queer going on here. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. From his examination of the older individual's remains, the osteologist Per Hulk has suggested that this person may have had... I'm going to say this wrong, because it's very long... Morgagni Stuart Morell syndrome. Okay. This syndrome is characterized in skeletal remains by a thickening of the front of the skull, and can result in more body hair, including facial hair, and a deeper voice than is typical for cis women. It is therefore possible that this person was not perceived as a woman by the society in which they lived, and that their social gender was male, or a gender not recognized under a modern Western binary. Such an interpretation may also help to explain the apparently, quote, masculine, unquote, grave goods present in the burial, such as the harness mounts and belt fittings, which, hold on, this this has way too many consonants in a row. <laughs> Give me a second. Fedir Androshchuk has interpreted as evidence for a man's body being removed during the, quote, break-in, unquote, that occurred soon after the construction of the mound. Hmm... Yeah, so, like, the grave goods are so clearly interpreted as male by the schema they've got going that another archaeologist has suggested that maybe there was a man in this grave and he was just taken out later. Is it really that hard to think that, uh, that really? Is, hmm, okay. 
Well, if this might have been old, let me see when this man with too many consonants in his surname wrote his thing. <laughs> it's got an S-H and a C-H right next to each other. I don't know how to say that. Yeah, no, that's that's hard. Like, and to be fair, it's a totally plausible assertion that bodies could have been swapped. Yeah, like, it's not out of there, but, yeah. like, seems like you're adding something. All right, this article was from 2005, so I... I don't know. I can't. I was. I was ready for that to be like a like a nineteen eighty thing. <laughs> I don't know. It's a plausible assertion. Yeah, there was a break in. There is evidence for that. Right. But why would you want to swap bodies? Body I swap. think the idea was that there were originally three in there. Oh, and we just took one out. Yeah. That seems more plausible to me than like than a body swap. Right. Yeah. The body swap is definitely not happening. Like. Both of those bodies were originally in there. The The proposal was just that there was originally a third and someone took it out and huh. the, the male grave goods belonged to that one. Whack. But yeah, so that's the Oseberg ship burial, which we've talked about before, like I said. So, next burial site is the Kaupang Boat Burial. Kaupang? I don't know how to say that. Also in Vestfold, Norway, in either the 9th or 10th centuries. Oh no, in both the 9th and 10th century. I see. Summary. A man was buried here in the 9th century. In the 10th century, a ship burial was placed in the same spot. Deliberately, we assume, because the keel is aligned with the body underneath it. That is so cool. The boat burial contains four people. An adult woman at the prow. The remains of an infant in that woman's lap. A man in the middle of the boat, his head close to the woman's. And while that's obviously tugging at Zoe's heartstrings, the... Article focuses on the fourth individual, okay. which we're, whom we're going to talk about now. All right, all right. So very clearly, like the makings of a family here. Yeah, and then yeah, this the other people person. in front are definitely a family. Okay, and the, they're in the boat. Yes, okay. they're they're in the front of the boat. And then this other person this is also in the boat. Fourth person is at the back of the boat. Okay, but in the boat. This isn't the yes. one underneath. Right. Okay, just checking. So quoting. Judging by the position of two oval brooches associated with this person, they were buried seated at the steering oar, separated from the other bodies in the grave by the body of a horse. Franz Arn Stilligar. I swear I'm saying all these names wrong. Someone's going to have to, like, send me an angry email. <laughs> we are doing our best, listeners. We are, we are Americans and, like... Dadgummit, I try and and do these names correctly, but oh my gosh, like, I'm fairly well-traveled, but I struggle. I struggle. We are trying this in good faith, is the point. Yes. But this guy has argued that this person should therefore be viewed as a ritual specialist, given the task of guiding the others in the burial to the afterlife. Interesting. In support of this interpretation is the suggestive positioning of the body, mm -hmm. placed in the same burial, but deliberately marked out as separate, connected to the family but not part of it. Then there is the position at the steering oar. Unlike the Oseberg ship, the boat at Kaupang was not anchored, lending weight to the idea that although entombed in earth, it was going to journey elsewhere on a course set by the person in charge of the steering oar. In addition to this, Neil Price has pointed out that although seated burial is not particularly common in Scandinavian cemeteries, it does occur with relatively high frequency in the graves he identifies as those of potential say their practitioners. Oh, interesting. Further evidence comes from the assemblage of grave goods associated with this fourth person, which included a number of unusual items. Perhaps the most obvious of these is an iron staff with a basket handle. Price identifies staffs... Staffs? 
Surely it's staves. pluralized staves, yeah. I mean, I think I think it can be both. I, I have seen both. All right, well, I'm going to say, Price identifies staves of this type as being indicative of the graves of sather workers and lesec guard... We're trying so hard. It's one of those L's with the horizontal line across it. I don't even know how to say that. I don't know either. Just right, um, I'll, I'll just, just Americanize it and, and just go for it. We're so sorry. I mean, I'm fine with mispronouncing French names, because, like, I don't know, I feel like they're colonialist enough that they deserve it, but Eastern <laughs> European names I feel a little worse about. They're, they have interesting syntax and phonology. Anyway, uh, Lesec Gardella concurs that, quote, its placement under a stone strongly suggested it may have been used in magic practices, unquote. The twisted prongs of its handle, together with its symbolic crushing under a stone, suggests the ritual killing enacted on other metal objects, especially weapons, in the Iron Age, but also recall the treatment of a woman, also frequently identified as a sather practitioner, buried at Gerdrup in Denmark, whose body was pinioned under a large rock. As with the Oseberg ship, this is a funeral narrative which combines respect and fear. I'm going to summarize the, a good chunk of this here. We should also note fragments of hide suggest that this person in the back of the boat is wearing an unusual leather costume that's pretty suggestive of the one that Thorbjorg in the Saga of Eric the Red is described as wearing. That is so cool. And included in the goods associated with this person in the back of the boat is an axe and a shield. Fuck yeah! Now, since there's a horse in the way, it's clear that the axe and shield belong to this individual, not the male in the middle of the boat. Right. However, the oval brooches found with the same remains suggest conventionally feminine attire. This person's burial goods therefore incorporate elements of both masculinity and femininity. And I, I do want to say here that it was common for Vikings, and again, like, You've all heard this rant before. Viking is a career, blah, blah, blah. But okay, these individuals, this culture did do sacrificial burials, sort of like the Egyptians. So you would have like the person who died and then you would have the horse, the servant, the whoever also buried with them. So I'm wondering, like, is this a sacrificial burial? You know, it could be. Was this Seether like, yeah, I'll, I'll guide him to the afterlife. Like, that's that's so fascinating to me. It seems like this, let's see, if this person has been osteologically or genomically sexed, it's not mentioned here. But okay. based on grave goods, it could go either way, which definitely suggests that they're in a very liminal space, gender-wise. Yeah. They have the, the brooches, which are traditionally female, and they have the sword and the shield, which is traditionally male, and they're at the back of the ship piloting it, which is traditionally male. Yeah. But they're almost certainly wearing women's clothing. In yeah. fact, they're wearing the same clothing that's described as Thorbjörg's. With Wild. The, with the oval brooches that are traditionally found in women's, in women's graves. graves. Probably. That is so cool. All right. Third one. This is the Klinta double cremation in Uland, Sweden from the 10th century. Quoting, The two people cremated at Klinta were burnt together along with a number of grave goods on a boat overlaid with bear skins that doubled as their pyre. Once the flames had died, the human remains were washed and placed in separate small pottery containers, each placed in its own grave pit and surrounded by an array of objects. The act of washing was presumably not a perfunctory hosing down of the remains, but instead a careful and intimate process, bringing the living into direct physical contact with the dead. 
Now, I'm going to summarize this one more than the others because I think this one is the one that's most a stretch in doing a gender reading. Okay, yeah, that makes sense. To summarize, the grave pits blur gender a bit. There are traditionally masculine items in the woman's grave and traditionally feminine items in the man's grave. Like, not that they were just switched, but like there's a bit moved from one to another and a bit moved from the other to the other. And the remains are also slightly mixed. Uh, Some remains from the man are in the ceramic pot with the woman. Interesting. And early interpretations assume this was an accident, but more recently arguments have been made that given the extreme care taken with the rest of this burial, it was probably done on purpose. I would say so. I don't I don't know whether that's like a flux of gender or whether it's like I want him to have some of my stuff and I want her to have some of my stuff as like a we are together as a couple and even passing on we are going to still be one. Right, yeah. Like maybe I'm just overly cis-heteronormative. What's the word I'm looking for? My initial reading of that when it was described is like this just sounds like a romantic gesture yeah. between like a presumably straight couple. Right. That's how I would initially read it. But I don't know. This person knows more than I do. Maybe there's something that I'm not seeing. Huh. I mean, it's definitely genderqueer in that they have decided to do those things. Yeah. Like, again, like with the idea of lesbian-like, this is a queer-like behavior. Yeah, I can see that. To borrow the term, I suppose. All right. There's one last one. This is one that was in the news a few years ago, so you may be familiar with it. Oh, is this the the Viking-like queen lady with her black eyeball? I think that was an Egyptian one. Oh, I thought it was Viking. Oh, no, I think you're right. Egyptian. Anyway, she was badass. Keep going. Yeah. All right. So this is the Birka Chamber Grave found in Björka, I think I'm saying that right, Sweden from the 10th century. This one is relevant because it shows a transgression of our preconceptions and assumptions regarding gender roles, but is not a Sather practitioner as far as we can tell. Right. So the grave we're talking about is numbered as 581. 581 is a prototypical warrior grave, complete with an array of weapons and riding equipment, even down to the bodies of two horses. Such graves have consistently been gendered as male by excavators, usually in the absence of osteological sexing. Going back to our first point. Yes. This makes it difficult to say how heavily gendered a warrior social identity really was. And by, quote, warrior social identity, unquote, I am still quoting directly from the text, I mean that the role of warrior was not just a job title, but also a social rank, Mm -hmm. one that could be held by people who were not involved in combat on a regular basis. Such an interpretation is supported by the large number of warrior graves, whose occupants do not ever appear to have suffered a severe injury, as well as evidence from early medieval England where very young children were accorded warrior burials complete with weapons they could have never wielded in life. I recall reading somewhere and I could be correct and I I could be sorry I could be correct I could also be totally incorrect that if a woman died in childbirth she was accorded like that warrior status I have not heard that but that that's a cool idea yeah I hope it's true I hope it's true I'll have to check on that but anyway a true picture of the gender balance among warriors of this period would require far more extensive osteological or genomic sexing of the remains in weapons graves than has thus far been carried out, and would still leave the problem that sexed remains cannot tell us anything about an individual's gender. Holger Arbemann's report on the material from 581, the first published work on the grave, confidently declares its occupant to be a man, one of few occasions where this is explicitly noted in his accounts, 
and subsequent researchers working on the Birka material have largely followed his lead. However, over the years, several osteologists have raised doubts about the sexing of the bones from 581, and in 2017, a team of researchers genomically tested the remains and discovered that the deceased almost certainly had XX chromosomes. Though the media, and indeed the researchers themselves, were quick to label this individual a female warrior and connect them with the shield maiden figures popular in later <laughs> literature, the obvious point should be made that chromosomal analysis cannot tell us anything about a person's social gender. Indeed, without an understanding of gender which recognizes trans identities, advances in sexing techniques such as those used on the Birka grave run the risk of reinforcing essentialist ideas of the physical body as ultimate arbiter of identity, obscuring the potential complexity of lived experiences in the Iron Age. Yep, yep, very true. As noted above, so few graves have been osteologically sexed, as opposed to having gender assigned based on grave goods, that it is impossible to derive a meaningful picture of the assigned sex-based distribution of weapons in graves, let alone the implications of this for our understanding of late Iron Age Scandinavian social gender. However, at our current state of knowledge, unambiguous weapons, as opposed to knives and axes, which have non-combat uses... Mm -hmm are vanishingly rare in female graves in Scandinavia. In the absence of a fuller re-examination of weapons graves across Scandinavia, such objects can be plausibly interpreted as part of a funerary narrative that sought to construct an image of masculine social identity. An identity which, as in the case of 581, was not always in alignment with modern, binary sexing of the body. So basically, the author is saying something like, this could be a warrior woman, or this could be someone who was chromosomally female, but socially male. Mm -hmm. And until we do more study of... What that looks like. Yeah, we, we would have to do more, like, genomic sexing of, of remains. Until we do that, we can't really say. Yeah. That is so interesting. And that's a great reading, too, because no matter... Let's just say that even if that individual did identify as female, as woman, whatever, and was a warrior woman, they're still queer in the sense that that is a role that was not generally attributed to women. Yeah. In the surviving literature, at least, it is intensely tied up with gender roles. Yeah. Yeah. Wasn't there in one of our, one of our sagas that we read for... Professor Hughes' class, like, there was a woman who was, like, real big and beefy, and she wore pants, and she, like, punched a guy off his horse or something. I do remember a woman named Aud who wore pants. Maybe it was just her. But yeah, I I don't know. I was just remi reminded of, of her for the same reason. Like, maybe she was one of those individuals. Yeah, I think it was Geesley's saga. I'd have to look into that. But anyway, I've, I've got uh, the conclusion of this article, or part of the conclusion. I'm not reading the whole thing verbatim. The narratives presented by the burials discussed here share a common feature, the evocation of a gender system that was more complicated than a simple male-female binary reliant on anatomy. Our understanding of this system is still limited by the nature of the evidence, which is often fragmentary and subject to a variety of interpretations. In many cases, we are still working within the constraints laid down by archaeologists of the 19th century. It is only by bringing a wider range of perspectives to bear on the matter including approaches which take account of trans identities, that we can begin to overcome the limitations of a binary approach. In this way, we can appreciate more clearly the complexity of gender in the Iron Age and begin to understand gender in this historical moment as well as in our own with greater contextual insight. Absolutely fascinating. 
I thought it was very interesting. Yeah. I also think it does a lot to, I guess, undercut our presumptions of grave goods, those kind of identities, and the, I guess, immutable facts of hard science. Because I, I think a lot of the time, anthropology and history, blah, 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 medieval like studies, all of that stuff is sort of like very clearly it's not a science but people people look at that stuff and they're like oh well that's not facts that's not science but even in something that can use quote unquote hard science yeah i was going to say technically archaeology is a science it's just right. a social science it's a social science but even even then our hard science our data our facts our the biology the remains that we can actually touch and do tests on and like that stuff is not all that helpful when determining what the past looked like. Yeah. And we can't take it, quote unquote, as fact. Because even it is faulty. Yeah, we can never know everything. Yeah. And that, that's really fun. Because especially, I guess, for me, looking at someone who's very, very interested in, in archaeology, like in high school, I did, I think, look at it that way in large part when I was young. And I was like, oh, well, that's like, it's like history, but the truth and that's very, very much not what it is. Like, we're all doing our best to figure out what these things look like and what was quote unquote real. But again, one field does not outweigh the other. And you have to look at it from a vast perspective. And so this was really cool to like undercut some of my, my own assumptions. All right. All right. You have an article. So this one, changing tax yet again. This is David F. Greenberg and Marcia H. By Stern's article, Christian Intolerance of Homosexuality. And this one, I am focusing less on the intolerance and more actually on different ways that early Christian sexuality was expressed. Like, to me, that's what really stood out of this article. So I will be focusing on those things. But it also provides a really interesting reading of like how we got up to this point. And mind you, this was written in 1982. So it's pretty old. So just keep that in mind as we go through it. One of the other articles I found was from the 90s. And I actually set it aside because I was like, your terminology is too outdated. Yeah, like this is comfortable reading that. Okay, so I'm like not even going to read the introduction like this to me is more like here's some cool facts that I found that I thought were interesting. But here we go. So, quote, here we will examine the contributions made by economic and political transformations of the late Hellenistic and Roman empires and the church reforms of the Middle Ages to the crystallization of a distinctly Christian intolerance of homosexuality. So the point here is that, wow, believe it or not, other things besides the Bible have influenced how Christianity works. (laughs) I would, I mean... If I were to list the various things that I think have influenced how Christianity works, I think the Bible would actually be near the bottom. Yeah, exactly. Even from early Christianity is my point here. So here we go. Quote, male homosexuality among ancient Greeks has been regarded commonly as having arisen as an expression of the comradeship of arms among noble warriors in the heroic age as a part of a primitive religious initiation ceremony for young men. Wow, this really is an old article. It, yeah. Yeah, it's it's old. You could not get away with saying primitive religious ceremony nowadays. No, <laughs> you really couldn't. Yeah, I, I think I read at one point like a C.S. Lewis article and he used the word like primitive five times on the first page. And I was like, oh, OK, <sighs> just breathe. <laughs> like I, I was so uncomfortable reading that paper. 
But anyway, this references like the Spartan practice of older men like taking younger men under their wings in the military. Like this wasn't just Spartan, this was very widespread, but that's that's my like touch point for a lot of people because that's what they know. I thought in the Spartan military they were closer in age and it was like the teacher student thing the Athenians had going on that was more age difference. It was both. I think you're right. The Athenians was more teacher student and then the Spartans were like, "We're bros. It's a bromance." Um, with bro jobs with bro jobs and spears and swords and thrusting and yeah future mac here i looked into this a little more and it seems that from the information we have zoe is correct there was generally an age difference in relationships both among spartan warriors and the famous sacred band of thebes Possibly because it was meant to be a kind of mentor-mentee arrangement. So yeah. So anyway, that was very, very common. That is what was going on at this time. The word for the older-younger dynamic is known as pederasty. So I will probably be referencing that again because... That is, generally speaking, what is referenced in the Bible as being, like, prohibited. Funnily enough, Paul uses a word that he made up. It is only ever found in the epistles. Like, and I'm not just saying in the Bible, I'm saying in any literature ever. So he made it up and it didn't catch on? Basically, yeah. What's the word? Or will we get there? I don't know if we'll get there. This is something that I'm referencing outside of that. Was he trying to make fetch happen? He was. Arsenokoitai. I'm sorry, what? Arsenokoitai. Koitai, yeah. Arsenokoitai. Yeah, I've never encountered this word. Yeah, that's because Paul is the only one who ever uses it. This is from the Robertson Wellesley United Church. So not necessarily a scholarly article, but yeah, this is the word. It is only ever used in Corinthians and First Timothy, and there's no other uses of it in the Bible. There's no other uses of it in other texts at this time. So, like, translating it is very, 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 very difficult. Yeah, are we sure it even means homosexuality or pederasty or It means or what have you? male bed. Arsen is male and koite is bed. So it's, like, male bed. Like a bedfellow. Okay. I guess that's, an, that's, that's a reasonable um, inference then. Yeah. So... I take this to read as, like, practicing pederasty, which is, generally speaking, pedophilic in nature. Because that's the cultural touchstone that Paul is writing in. So, take that as you will. That's the word he's referencing. I am referencing it for greater context. Blah, blah, blah. That's what the Greeks did. Okay. Then he talks about how, like, a younger male can be topped by an older male without overturning any sexual mores in ancient Greek society. That's how it worked. I think we've already talked about that before. We're pretty familiar yeah, with that. Although expressions of distaste for homosexuality can be found in Roman literature, negative attitudes seem to have centered on effeminacy, coercion, and the seduction of minors, and the participation of citizens, but not foreigners or slaves, in prostitution. According to Boswell, again, a very strong bias appears to have existed, and this is talking about the Romans. A very strong bias appears to have existed against passive sexual behavior on the part of an adult male citizen. Non-citizen adults, that is to say foreigners and slaves, and like there were a lot of non-citizen Romans as you got to the later mm -hmm. empire, 
Because being a citizen was like a very special thing. Like, oh, you got your little badge and your card and you're so special. So is this like, because Rome is so great, true Roman men must only be in the active position? Yeah, basically. Yes. Patriotism in the bedroom. In the bedroom. Yes. So if, if you were a foreigner or a slave, you could be penetrated. Like, that was fine. Like, whatever. But if you were a Roman citizen, like, nah, nah, nah. Those who most commonly played the passive role in intercourse were boys, women, and slaves. All persons excluded from the power structure. Often they did so under duress, economic, or physical, is what Boswell makes very, very clear. Mm -hmm. And of course, like, some surely were not, but like, a lot of the times it was under duress. So I found that to be very interesting. I think this also backs up the idea that Paul is referring to pederasty here. He's like, hey, please, like, don't. Don't do that thing the Romans do. It's super creepy. Well, well, not even that, but just don't engage in pederasty. Don't be a pedophile is what Paul is saying here. But anyway, so anyway, here's here's the background to how the Romans even viewed this stuff. The spread of asceticism. So now we're getting into later Roman Empire and how asceticism ties into all of this. Asceticism was associated typically with philosophies or religions based on dualistic oppositions of good and evil, spirit and flesh, male and female. And so you can very heavily see this in a lot of early church writings. Augustine is very, very heavily impacted by this. Like he goes on and on about like the weakness of the flesh. And then of course we get this into like the weaker sex. Women aren't as strong. Women can't, they don't have as much willpower. And even to the point of like women are more like not sexually active, but sexually promiscuous. Like they're more, they have a greater tendency to be sexually perverse and impropriatous compared to male willpower. And this also comes Hmm. down to like men being the ones to be on top. Like if you were a Greek or a Roman and you could like control your urges so that you only penetrate others and not be penetrated, then yeah, you are such a man. Yes, you must mount your partner as Rome mounts the world. Yeah, it, the whole thing is just so f***ed. But anyway, so these are the ideas of asceticism. da 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 on we go. And how did we get to this? The growth of long-distance trade and imperial expansion, the Hellenistic kingdoms, the Roman Empire, brought about increased contact among adherents of different religions. This led to syn- I hate this word. Syncretism? Syncretism, yeah. Yeah. But also fostered skepticism about traditional pantheons and associated rites, including fertility cults whose worship included homosexuality. It also favored the development of transnational monotheistic religions, like Christianity. Notable, Hebrew literature written between the Babylonian exile and the Roman conquest viewed sexual desire as man's greatest weakness. In the Talmudic period, when Jews enjoyed greater security, there was a more positive view of sex. So that's very interesting as well. And they go on to note the only general prohibitions against male homosexuality in Hebrew scripture appear in Leviticus 18 and 20. In addition, Deuteronomy prohibits male and female cult prostitution. Scholars have dated the Holiness Code in Leviticus, of which this passage is a part, as post-exilic, so after the exile from the Promised Land, and concluded that it was probably written in Judea, not Babylonia. So this is, again, that period of greater insecurity. So the more, like, the more insecure your culture is, the more you want to cling to those binaries, that sort of aestheticism, which I found to be a very interesting, like, track. Yeah. 
I've seen it argued also that a lot of the uh, prohibitions in those books are less like you shouldn't do this because it's immoral, but you shouldn't do this because this is a thing that the pagans do. And we are we are we separate. Are and we are preserving our culture by yes. forbidding you from, say, ritual cross-dressing. Yes, 100%. 100%. So moving onward, and I think, yeah, so basically this is like the development of asceticism and how it presented. A lot of this is kind of not interesting to read, so I'm skipping over it. Okay. Like, it's fascinating in that there's a lot of data, but it's not as interesting for what we're looking at it for. Right, before we go on. Yes. It just occurred to me. You might want to define asceticism for our listeners. Gosh. Let me Google it and then I'll I'll reference the article. All right. I, I don't want to rely on like my understanding of it. Right. And I honestly am not sure we have the same understanding of it because maybe it means something very different within like a religious fra- framework, framework or not. Yeah. yeah. So asceticism as defined by Merriam-Webster and or Wikipedia, whatever. Severe self-discipline and avoidance of all forms of indulgence, typically for religious reasons, or a lifestyle characterized by abstinence from sensual pleasures, often for the purpose of pursuing spiritual goals. And this is what you mean in this context? Yes, yes, it's the same thing. Okay. Did you have a different understanding of it? No, that was the one I Okay, cool, same. So basically, like, again, you can see this very much in a lot of Paul's writings when he's like, brothers and sisters of Christ, like, abstain from the pleasures of the flesh, abstain from indulgence in drinking, abstain from adorning yourself in riches, blah, blah, blah. So you can see a lot of that in Paul's writing. And so once we get to early Christianity, quote, Early Christian writings were generally antagonistic to homosexuality. However, this antagonism was not restricted to Christian thought. Although, oh lord, John Chrysostom? Chrysostomus? Yes, Chrysostomus was among the most vehement of the early fathers of the church in his denunciations of homosexuality. His somewhat older contemporary, Libanius, a pagan born in Antioch, expressed similar feelings with equal forcefulness, which... Again, especially as I'm reading this article, as the Roman Empire declined and the Greeks, you know, all millennia ago declined, and with the rise of asceticism, there was greater condemnation of homosexuality across the board, not just among like the early church and early Christians. And I don't say this to be like, see, everybody did it, but to show that this was a It was becoming a cultural norm that homosexuality was not as practiced. And this especially makes sense if the main ways that you practiced homosexuality, I don't like that term, but oof. Well, you have to keep practicing in order to get any good at it. Oh, I know. So, okay, let me rephrase this. So as you got further into the collapse of the Roman Empire, and as the Roman Empire got like massive... When the majority of homosexual sex was performed on minors and on slaves and on prostitutes, you can start understanding why it was condemned. Less because of the homosexuality and more because, like, these are minors and these are slaves. Yeah, there's definitely a consent issue. Yeah, yeah. So that's part of it. The other part of it is also, again, this asceticism where it's like, oh, we're going to restrain ourselves from the desires of the flesh. So this is like an, a cultural shift that's happening independent of religion. Correct. Definitely informed by religion. And you, we can also see this in, I believe, Buddhist and Hindu thought. 
Yeah, I have no idea what they think about homosexuality. I have to ask them. So it's sort of a cultural trend. We're shifting towards that. And then we get into some fun facts about the early church based on some of these ideals. And I think these are really fun and that's why I'm highlighting them. So the first one is in the early Syrian church, because asceticism was such a thing, only unmarried Christians could be baptized. Now, unmarried, does that also presume virginal? I think so. But yeah, like if you are married... Sorry, bro, you can't, you can't have this sacrament. It's not for you. You're living in sin. Yeah, by being married, by engaging in any kind of sex. So all those Catholics who are on about, you know, having a whole bunch of babies to, what do they call it? I don't think it's a Catholic. It's like the, they call it the quiverful movement. Oh yeah, I've heard of yeah. these guys. Yeah. Sketchy, sketchy. They're, they're very worried. Oh, it's cultish. But anyway- Their whole thing is like, let's go and be fruitful and multiply into the Christian faith so that we can outnumber those horrible, like, Gentiles. I don't know, whatever. That's their whole thing. Do they call people outside their cult Gentiles? I know the Mormons do that, but... Yeah, I've heard it. It's rough. Okay. Point is, all those people who are having so many children to be fruitful and multiply are technically living in sin, according to the Syrian church. Leaders of the early church gave sex much greater attention and rejected it far more passionately. Virtually all of the church fathers, Gregory of Nazarius, Gregory of Nyssa, John Christomus, Ambrose, Augustine, Jerome, praised virginity and looked on sex with horror. Which is why the Christians died out several hundred years ago. Yeah, we're, well, we're going to get into that. <laughs> so there you go. Some Western bishops of the second century made continence compulsory for church members. A number of Christian writers, including Eustanthius of Sebastia, a bishop of the mid-4th century, held that married people could not be saved. You're just, you're screwed, bruh. You're out. You're done. So and he's if you're a bishop. married, not only can you not be baptized, you're going to hell. You're going to hell. Yeah. According to this bishop. That, that is wild. Yep. Augustine considered sexual pleasure within marriage to be sinful even through intercourse that was nonetheless redeemed by the desire for children and the sacramental character of marriage. So Augustine held that you can be married, you can have sex in a marriage, and you can want it for kids. Still sin. You're still sinning. Now, mind you, this man got down with so many other dudes in his youth. Yeah, I was gonna say, like, he's best known for that that thing I quoted earlier yep. about like, he's like, oh yes, Lord, give me chastity, but, but not, not yet. yet. Yep. No, but he turned hard. He turned really, really hard. Like you read his confessions. I'm like, oh buddy, you need some therapy. Hmm. It's rough. It's like actually rough to read. I'm, I'm fascinated by the idea that they have of this like growth mindset where in order to just keep going, that means they have to keep converting people. Yes. Like, If they want to have the same number of Christians next century as they do now, all of those have to be converts. Yes. That is not, that's insane. Yeah. Yeah. So, and I love this because so many people are like, well, Augustine, one of the church fathers was queer, but he converted and he didn't do that anymore. It's like, yeah, also he still held. Is that why, is that why you know that offhand? Is that an example that's thrown around often? That's one option. I like. I also read the Confessions. I also read his City of God. Oh, uh, okay. But also, yeah, I've heard that one too. I had never heard of this oh, yeah. until you brought it up today. Oh yeah, yeah. 
It's like, well, Augustine was an ex-queer, and God Ooh. saved him. It's it's real bad. It's real bad. It's like, Don't okay, but also any kind of sex is a sin, according to him, so... Yeah, you should keep that in your back pocket in case that comes up again. Yeah. What do you want, Patricia? You're on your third marriage. <laughs> like, you, you have six kids. Stop it. I see you have a child. Did you know that you're going to hell for that? Yeah. So for me, all of this is interesting because it shows so much about the modern Christian church, especially the modern American Christian church, which is why I wanted to cover this. And so this is less about like, how the early church was intolerant of Christianity and more about how the early church was intolerant of sex. Just throwing this out, just a question. Is there anything that they weren't intolerant of? The early Christians? Yeah, was it, or was it just like, you should go live in a cave in the desert and never do anything again? Pork. Yeah, okay. I guess you can so have pork. pork. Actually, that was one of the things that I really like about one of Paul's letters is that he writes that, hey, like, if you have an, a brother in Christ who was a Jew or like grew up in a tradition where he's not comfortable eating pork, don't make him eat pork and don't say he's wrong for doing that. He's in a different place and in a different walk in his like spirit, his spiritual walk. He's in a different place than that. And if you're comfortable with that and you don't regard it as a sin, that's fine. Chill the fuck out. Hey, that's nice. I like that. Yeah. And so like, that's the thing for me is like, Paul said, chill the fuck out about it. Like, if you regard something as a sin and you don't write, like, and you're not convicted, like, just lay the f*** off. It's an individualistic faith, you know. So he does, he does write that, which I like. Okay, moving forward. The second century apocryphal Acts of the Apostles maintained, and this is a different Acts than the- Gonna ask, yeah. yeah. This is a different Acts than the one that is currently found in publications of the Bible. But this apocryphal one maintained that married persons should refrain from sex. And that spiritual, that is celibate, marriages were not uncommon among early Christians. Sorry, that's not part of the Acts thing. The Acts thing is just that married people should be refraining from sex. But spiritual or celibate marriages were not uncommon among early Christians. So you would have two people get legally and biblically married and just never have sex. Seriously, what was the plan? Well, let's jump into that. A number of the Gnostic versions of Christianity held equally negative views of sex. Really? Well, I guess they do kind of have a problem with, like, the whole physical world. Mm -hmm. The Mar uh, what is it? Marcionite communities in Persia and Mesopotamia were celibate. The followers of Valentinus, best known of these were uh, origin, castrated themselves. Wow! This practice became common in Syria and Mesopotamia. Yeah. Did it now. So, you're not going hard enough, Christian dudes. Commit. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I dare you. Yeah. So that was an early practice. Wait, wait, wait. Was that, a, was that a Gnostic thing? I do like learning about the Gnostics. Yes. This was Origen and Valentinus. All right. Yep. As the Christian church was uncentralized administratively prior to the conversion of the Emperor Constantine in 313, no single doctrine of sexual conduct prevailed throughout the entire church. Instead, each bishop exercised absolute authority in his own diocese, influenced only by the moral authority and persuasiveness of his fellow bishops. Hmm. However, this changes over time. So, by the middle of the 3rd century, church leaders began to oppose excessively rigid discipline, knowing that it would hinder recruitment and lead to the loss of members. Whoa! Ah, they're starting to catch on, yeah. I see. So, over the next 100 years... By the 4th century, church councils forbade self-castration. <laughs> I love that they had to make it a rule. Yeah. So they forbade self-castration. And by the late 4th to early 5th centuries, 
perfectionism, including sexual abstinence as a requirement of church membership, had been clearly rejected. The policy that emerged was one of accepting sexuality, but only within marriage. Hmm. So, there you go. I feel like that doesn't explicitly exclude homosexuality. It doesn't, which is the point that I wanted to make. They're not saying that it's wrong to have gay sex. They're saying it's wrong to have gay sex outside of marriage. I mean, I also disagree with that, but honestly, you know, they should be pro-gay marriage then. I agree with that. <laughs> like, <laughs> ah, I don't know why this is so hard. But anyway, the early church did not condemn, or sorry, gay sex in marriage is my point. So I thought that was interesting. But they did have to ban self-castration because that was too far. So where... Do- Maybe you're going to cover this in a bit. I don't know. But where did where did all these penitential stuff, where did all that come from? The Middle then? Ages. We're getting there. We're going through our history. All right. So that Christian opposition to sexuality reflected a broader rejection of all sexual experiences not intended to lead to procreation within marriage is evident in the even-handed ah, treatment of heterosexual and homosexual writings in the early church fathers' like texts. For example, St. Basil of Nyssa, I don't know if it's Nyssa or Nyssa, but it's N-Y-S-S-A, the founder of Christian monasticism, wrote in 375 to another bishop, quote, He who is guilty of unseemliness with males will be under discipline for the same as adulterers. St. Gregory of Nyssa explains that the reason for this is in a canonical letter written to the bishop of Melitine in 390, both heterosexual adultery and homosexual intercourse are unlawful pleasures. All right. So it's, I I can see where this is going now. So if they say only in marriage and only for the production of children. Yep. That's where this comes from. That's where this goes. So far as is known, Elvira was the first council to formulate canons for the regulation of sexuality. I didn't know she did that. showed horror movies i know so this is in 309 37 of the 81 canons adopted concerned this topic the one dealing with homosexuality specified that men who engaged in sexual relations with boys should not be admitted to communion even at death that's it that's so it's still specifically pederasty it's still specifically pederasty huh and that's the like official council view correct at this point, there is no anti-homosexual statement from the church. Correct. Just these individual thinkers. Other canons specified the same rigorous penalties for adulterous women, prostitution. Yeah. And then we have individual penitentials that go into homosexual and heterosexual offenses. But the only one dealing with homosexuality in this first like unified council is about pederasty. Huh. Which is why I wanted to bring it up in the beginning. And then we also see that Roman criminal law reflected a repressive stance toward homosexuality even before the empire became Christian. So this is not like Constantine's like, I'm a Christian now. Also, death to the gays. This is, this is going on beforehand. Some forms of homosexual activity had become capital offenses by the end of the century, and that is the third century. So by the end of the third century. Wait, so that's before Constantine converts. Correct. Okay. Yeah. Justinian, in the early 6th century, reiterated that the death penalty for male homosexual repeat offenders would be instituted. Hmm. Yep. I've got a book that says he does some pretty questionable stuff himself. himself. Yeah, Justinian, I'll bet. Here we go. 
The veneration of ascetics tells us that the awe of sexual abstinence went beyond a tiny church elite. Had there been gross disparity between Christian ideals and popular values, conversions to Christianity before it became the official religion of the empire would be puzzling, which I think is a very good point. Like, this is a cultural phenomenon that is going on. It's like, hey, maybe we should abstain from sexual vices and also not, you know, deal in coercive queer sex and pederasty as themes. Like, this is a thing that's going on. Since all Roman anti-homosexual legislation from the 4th century onward was introduced by Christian emperors, it has generally been assumed to have reflected Christian attitudes towards homosexuality. Boswell has criticized this assumption, arguing that Christians were unlikely to have been particularly antagonistic to homosexuality, like, especially compared to everybody else who wasn't Christian at the time. Like, antagonistic, yes, but not like... But not outside of the norm. Yeah, like we see today, yeah. His critics have attempted to refute Boswell's arguments by producing evidence that the church was indeed hostile towards homosexuality, but they don't show that Christians were more intolerant than pagans of the same class. Yeah, so... Yeah. At this point in time, like at the fourth century, if you were doing homosexual stuff, it was pretty looked down upon, regardless of what faith, creed, religion, whatever you were. And then something that we get into next is virginity, interestingly enough, which I think as you pointed out in maybe our last episode, like virginity as a social class in particular. Oh, right. Yeah, yeah. Wait, are they also against that? They're not, no, they're not against, they're not against virginity. That's like the one thing. Quote, the pederastic literature of the fourth and early fifth centuries shifted the focus by making virginity a major component of personal purity. Sexual abstinence replaced martyrdom as the prescribed means of imitating Christ. Huh. Which I think is very, very interesting because at first it was like, I'm a Christian, I will die for my faith. And then it became, I'm a Christian, I won't ever have sex for my faith. Do we have proof that Jesus never had sex? Does the Bible actually say that? Not technically, no. Not that I've ever seen. Eh. All right. He never had offspring. I mean, I think some people have argued that he did, but in biblical doctrine, he never had right. kids. But like, there's no point in the Bible that's like, oh yeah, he he died a virgin. Like, no, it's not in there. No, as far as I know, no. So, so why is why is that the way to imitate Christ? Who decided he was a virgin? The fucking council. I don't know, man. This is- I don't think you should get assigned virginity by a council. <laughs> so I thought this was interesting because, like, again, this is like a cultural aesthetic shift into, like, from martyrdom into this personal purity and this identity. Like, part of your identity now is like, I'm a virgin and therefore I am closer to Christ and I am better at Christianity than all the sinners. Which is a hell of a shift. Yeah. Yeah, it is. Like, that's kind of rough. And then these patterns are exactly those predicted by Mary Douglas's, oh Lord, neo-Durkheimian analysis of the relationship between, it's a rough word. These patterns are predicted by the analysis of the relationship between social organization and body experience. Douglas postulates a correspondence between the ways people experience their bodies and the way they experience society. She goes on to conceptualize society in terms of two variables, group and grid. Group refers to the strength of identification with a group and grid to the existence and stability of formally recognized differentiated social roles. And I'm not going to go into all of this science because it's like several pages long. But the point here is that you can see this track with Christian doctrine and identity. You can see this track with 
that late Roman, early blah, 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 like social identity, mm -hmm. we see this tracking. This is a societal shift. Also a group shift, definitely a Christian shift, but also a societal shift. When grid is high, Douglas argues, we should expect an affirmation of society and its institutions. So grid, grid is the stability of formally recognized differentiated social roles. Okay. So I thought that was interesting because like we could track this, we can predict this, and I would love to see where we are right now. This is very heady. Yes. I'm not sure I grasp it. That's fair. That's why I am not going into it. But I did think it was interesting that there's like the stats behind it. Following the collapse of the Roman Empire in the West, there is a little reference to homosexuality in secular sources. Alcuin, the 8th century Anglo-Saxon scholar, deplored incest and adultery, but not homosexuality. Apart from a capitulary of Charlemagne that imposed no penalty, secular legislation dealing with homosexuality simply does not exist in like early, the early Middle Ages. That's wild. In sacred law, as previously noted, the penitentials often treated homosexuality on an equal footing with heterosexual offenses. Moreover, Boswell indicates that in practice, penalties were often mitigated and that the penitentials themselves were not widely used. While some such officials were unequivocally hostile to homosexuality, there is reason to think that the sentiments were far from universal, even among the clergy. Hehe, <laughs> something something, modern Catholicism. Although we cannot be overly confident about the conclusions based on very limited evidence about a period with few extant records, it seems unlikely that homosexuality was repressed vigorously during the early and high Middle Ages in Western and Central Europe. The comparative acceptance of homosexuality can be understood in the context of the medieval social order. The developments that had given rise to asceticism in late antiquity were now long past. So again, we see this like grid and group thing kind of the, on the other side of it now. So during the late Roman Empire, there's like strict social order. And so we see this like clinging to aestheticism and clinging to those ideals. But now in like the Middle Ages, we don't have that as much. Like there's some flexibility here. And so mm -hmm. as that shift occurs, there is less clinging to, oh, I should be so pure and I should blah, blah, blah. And so we do see like that strictness in the writings and the quote-unquote laws and blah 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 but we don't really see it in practice and so i thought that was interesting because this is the opposite of the group grid thing that we saw earlier with the rise of asceticism in the late i guess the early first centuries or so so i thought that was very interesting that is interesting they just kind of like like it, it's still in the writing but there's no evidence that they like took it seriously right precisely Ecclesiastical denunciations of homosexuality began to reappear in the 11th century, with homosexuality among the clergy becoming a target of persistent criticism. Peter Damien, an energetic church reformer, led the attack with his mid-century castigation of ecclesiastical sinfulness. That's a phrase. You're not allowed to do that. There was a council. Yeah. The Liber Gomoranus urged Pope Leo IX to impose the maximum penances allowed in the penitentials for all homosexual violations regardless of age and circumstances, a proposal which Leo rejected, which I think interesting. is interesting. Yeah. So someone decided, like, no, we're bringing this back. We've got we've to crack down. Yep. And the Pope is just like, nah. no, why? Nah, we're good. We're good. It's chill. When did this turn back around is what I want to know. I think I'm getting there. The growing preoccupation with homosexuality was an indirect and partly unanticipated consequence of the attempts of church reformers in the mid to late Middle Ages to establish sacerdotal celibacy. So like church celibacy. Mm -hmm. 
Psychological conflicts engendered by forced celibacy, we suggest, resulted in an irrational hostility towards homosexuality among both clergy and laity. Why? I'll tell you exactly why. Because if you are a priest or a person in the church who cannot get married sure. to a woman, well, you, you can't really go off and uh, get with a woman. There might be evidence of sure. getting with a woman, namely pregnancy. So wouldn't you be very pro-homosexuality? No, because they want to. Ha- they want celibacy from the church. Wait, so the the whole thing is like, I'm sorry, is this suggesting that the anti-homosexuality push was just driven by like priests with repressed urges? Yes, yes, that is the entire thing. They were angry at themselves for wanting yes to go out and get like wow yeah. Yeah, they're like, we can't get married, we can't get a woman pregnant, because then we'll be kicked out of our position, but I still want sex. I just think it would have made so much more sense if they'd turned around and gone like, hey, can we get a dispensation? Like, can Brother John and I, like, hook up? Right, right. Like, if they'd gone the other direction with it. Mm Mm-hmm. Here we go. Let's see. The tendency towards hereditary offices in the feudalism of the time added to the reformers' determination to end priestly marriages. If the priesthood had become a hereditary benefice, the church would have lost much of its control over priests. Wait, wait. Were priests not celibate until the mid-Middle Ages? Correct. They could get married up to a point. Huh. Yeah. I did not know that. Yep. Yep. So that's where this is coming from. Because the church wanted more control. They didn't want it to go to different lords. They didn't want it to go to the king's third son. Right. Thus, these measures were taken by church officials as a part of a program to strengthen the hierarchical command structure to end the sale of these offices, basically. There were other considerations for this whole push for celibacy. The church was becoming wealthy and its accumulation of riches would have slowed if priests married and transmitted property intended for the church. They already have so much money. Why is this even relevant? Absolute power corrupts absolutely. They had too much money as soon as Constantine signed some stuff over yep. them. That was already too much. Yeah, but they need their power because they're a political actor. So, the celibacy rule met with strenuous and sometimes violent resistance from clerics and their wives, to the point where some Italian bishops did not dare announce the decrees. For this reason, enforcement was spotty at first and only partially effective. Yet, by the later half of the 13th century, clerical marriage had been eliminated to a large extent. So, like... Priests could get married until the 13th century. Huh. The elimination of heterosexual outlets for priests as a result of the celibacy rule could have only fostered the development of homoerotic feelings. Sexual experience is not merely a form of tension release or source of physical pleasure. It is also a way of establishing and maintaining emotional intimacy with others. In some people, the proportion is not known, but probably substantial. And in some circumstances, the psychological need for such a relationship is stronger than the orientation toward partners of a particular sex. That sounds plausible, yeah. Yeah. Thus, when a group of people is deprived of the opportunity to satisfy the need for emotional intimacy heterosexually, some members of the group can be expected to seek the fulfillment of that need homosexually. This is especially likely to happen in single-sex milieus, where contact with members of the opposite sex is entirely cut off. Like in the Navy. Yeah, Yeah. that's why they have that reputation. Exactly. High levels of homosexual behavior have been associated with prisons, English boarding schools, and Christian, Tibetan, Buddhist, and Islamic monasteries, as well as with some traditional Muslim societies, the classical Greek city-state, and Puritan New England, where heterosexual contacts were suppressed or curtailed. Yeah, you know, that does track. Yeah. Like, you hear a lot of things about single-sex schools. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah. All right, so I'm willing to believe that 
Despite the reformers' denunciations of homosexuality, their responses to it were often restrained. For clear political and organizational reasons, they gave much higher priority to ending lay, investiture, simony, and clerical marriage than the suppression of homosexuality. So they're more concerned with like, hey, no, 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 you're, you're a priest, you can't get married, rather than like, oh, you're, you know, diddling one of the other guys in town. Peter Damien, again, this like reformer guy who went to Pope Leo, complained that those guilty of homosexual relations with priests could avoid serious penalty by confessing to their partners. That might be true. I mean, yeah, why not? I can believe there's favoritism. Well, like, and it's like, oh, okay, like, oh, you gotta, you gotta pick a guy to confess all your sins to? I'm gonna go tell my boyfriend, hey, babe, I'm confessing the sin of f***ing you so good last night. Like, and then there's no penalty. As penance, I prescribe a spanking, which I will administer. <laughs> oh, talk about, oh, Lord. Now you got me thinking about, like, the whole flagellation movement. Oh. <laughs> All right. A couple other highlights. Oh, yes. In 11th and 12th century Normandy in England, the clergy complained about the prevalence of homosexuality in the royal court of the Norman rulers. The young men of the court had begun to wear long hair and women's clothing and adopted effeminate mannerisms. Is this actually homosexuality or just a style choice? Well, it's a, it's a style kind of choice that is gay looking and quote unquote effeminate. And so the Council of Westminster in 1108 condemned men's wearing their hair long. And several leading churchmen not only preached against the effeminacy of the court, but actually cut the hair of the king and nobles with their own scissors. These passages deplore homosexuality only incidentally. Their deepest preoccupation is with men dressing and acting like women. In the upper levels of feudal society, sexual stratification had been extremely sharp. I love that there was an entire council Yep. that was like, dress more manly and get a haircut. Yes. <laughs> yes, essentially, yes. What are they doing? Why are they wasting their time with this? Here's one written by the English cleric John of Salisbury in 1159. Heard of him. Which he, this man did not have to go into so much detail. Let me just say that. So here we go. Quote, when the rich, lascivious wanton is preparing to satisfy his passion, he has his allure elaborately frizzed and curled. He puts to shame a courtesan's makeup, an actor's costume, and thus arrayed he takes the feet of the figure reclining by him in his hands, and in plain view of others caresses them, and, not to be too explicit, the legs as well. The hand that had been encased in a glove to protect it from the sun and keep it soft for the voluptuary purpose extends its exploration. Growing bolder, he allows his hands to pass over the entire body with a lecherous caress, inciting the lavicious thrill that he has aroused and fans the flame of languishing desire. Bro, you you wrote that like you were writing a f***ing romance novel. I gotta admit, that does sound homosexual. Like, like the way he writes this... <laughs> It does seem like he's dwelling a little more than necessary. It extends his exploration, and as it grows bolder, it passes over the entire body with a lecherous caress. Like, are you yeah, kidding me? Yeah, you're right. Me? There's, there's, no reason to, there's no reason to write it that no! way. No! <laughs> Bruh! Like, why did you... <laughs> like, I bet you enjoyed <laughs> writing that, buddy. There's no other way. Like, why not just say, like, these guys are, are like, groping other dudes in the court and it makes me uncomfortable? 
he was just having too much fun. He was visualizing it very hard. Oh, so hard. (laughs) Thank you, John of Salisbury, for your contribution. (laughs) Fucking hell. It like, it reminds me of those, I think it's late medieval or renaissance, like prostitution flyers. They're basically like early porn books. And it's like these, like this woman who's at is like half hanging out the window and a guy who's standing in the street and the caption underneath is just my ass do you see it beckon it's <laughs> like that is less lecherous than what you just wrote john yeah well i mean i feel like you don't that's not a business you have to advertise a whole lot you can do like hey there's an ass here and people will go like yes i am interested yes yes correct so anyway, I don't think John had to write it that way is my main point there. <laughs> no, we absolutely did not. <laughs> and I thought it was fun to read. Okay. The bourgeoisie also reacted against sodomy, by which they meant all non-procreative sexual activity among the aristocrats, yep. seeing it as an unproductive self-indulgence that expressed lust, not love, or the desire for children. Indeed, sodomy became a metonym for excessive indulgence of material desires, evoking connotations that went far beyond sexuality. It represented a going beyond natural limits in a sexual sphere, in the same way that unrestricted greed did in the economic sphere. And I think this is very, very interesting. One, because they later connect it to, like, Italian money lending and that sort of a thing. Like, that is to say, like, the money lenders are all also sodomites. <laughs> With, like, yeah, like, okay, sure. But also, again, there's like this late medieval, early modern track back to that group and grid thing where it's like, oh, no, we're, we're going to condemn the self-pleasure thing. So yeah. the greed, the non-procreative sex, like the lavish dressing, blah, 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 all this stuff. The populace, quote unquote, started condemning that. And in that, they condemned homosexuality, not because it was homosexual, but because it was seen as, like, excess, which I think is interesting. What era is this? Is this, like, is this when Puritans are starting to happen? This is 13th, 14th century. Okay, so not quite not quite. yet, I don't not think. Not quite. But it only gets worse, like, as you go. Yeah, like, Dante placed usurers and sodomists together in the same circle of hell for that reason. Like, this, <laughs> this connotation was so popular that they're in the same level of hell. And so I think this is really interesting because, again, this is not people condemning same-sex relations for same-sex relations. They're condemning it for other reasons. Yeah, it seems mostly focused on, like, hating fun. Yeah. Or hating whatever you view as greed, the lavishness, like, all of that stuff. Yeah, it's very, like, these are things that you do not have for a spiritual purpose. You have them only for your own gratification, and therefore you're evil. And that just... Yeah. And that's and that's really why it's there. just falls into the same thing. Yeah, and that's that's the only reason. So I think that's interesting. So by the end of the 13th century, the major elements in the Christian response toward homosexuality had been created. Scholastic theology had reconstructed sodomy as a sin against nature, far worse than the other sexual sins. Mendicant orders, that is the Franciscans and Dominicans, had been created with a special mandate to suppress heresy and sodomy. The Inquisition, staffed by these orders, had been established. Where it was given a free hand, as in Spain, it played an active role in the prosecution of persons suspected of homosexual activity. The governments of the revived commercial cities and centralizing monarchies joined in this prosecution by executing offenders convicted in ecclesiastical courts and by trying, convicting, and executing offenders under their own secular authorities. Only in the modern era were these ideas and practices modified or abandoned. So, basically homosexuality as a sin 
and as like a punishable offense is very, very late in Christian thought. You know, that does explain when we read that Judith Bennett article. She was like, all of our trials for lesbianism are in like the end of the Middle Ages. Yeah, because it wasn't prosecuted before then. Huh. So yeah, that is that is this article. And I found it extremely illuminating because like the whole article is like the Christian intolerance of homosexuality. But like the way that I read it, and you can read it for yourselves. This is an article you guys can access. The way I read it is Christian intolerance of sex. And that's about it. Yeah. Or certain fashion choices. Or, yeah, or certain fashion choices. Well, that was just like, those guys were just like, quit being effeminate, which is its, is its own problem. So there you go. That is Christian intolerance of homosexuality, which is basically just Christians from early asceticism didn't like sex. Yeah, it's wild how much that's mutated. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And so if anyone asks you where that comes from, hopefully now you can kind of cite your sources and say, like, the whole reason that people in modern Christian America think that homosexuality is a sin is really because of the greed of the Catholic Church due to clerical marriages, wanting to exercise more control over the politics of Europe, and the sweeping aestheticism of the late Roman Empire. Not actually because a consenting same-sex relationship is wrong. That's not actually what is condemned ever, ever in this. Yeah. So there you go. Facts! I'm backing I'm backing you guys up. <laughs> this is my little pillar. I, I get to I get to stand here on my little You're high horse and cite my sources. And now you guys know that the word that Paul uses for homosexuals is actually referring to pederasty. And oh, by the way, the word homosexual or homosexuality was never actually in the Bible, printed in the Bible, until 1956. We didn't invent it until the modern era. Yeah. So, there you go. Fun fact for you people. <laughs> okay. That's what I had. I think this is more of an educational one than a, than a TTRPG one. But what I do want to do is have you, like, summarize what that ship burial that first ship burial looked like because that is perfect oh yeah you'd have me star that for a setting or an encounter and i want to give our wonderful listeners something they can use in their campaign because i realized this was a, a highly academic episode and if you guys have ideas for how to work this some of this stuff into a campaign let us know like pop in our discord all right i'll just read the description here it's gonna it's a little summarized because like the details of how it looks aren't the main point here, but is this is the Oseberg ship burial. So if you want more information, you can just Google that. That's O-S-E-B-E-R-G. So you've got a ship. It's more than 20 meters long. On the deck, there is a tent-like chamber in which there are two bodies placed surrounded by grave goods. On the front part of the ship, the foredeck, there are various, like, valuable items and sacrificed animals, but they're kind of just piled up. It's like someone's just tossed them on there. And the whole thing is enclosed in a turf mound with a chain anchoring it to a rock. I think that's a chain. Mm-hmm. Or an anchor of some kind. Yeah. Hold on. Let me get a... Oh, that's this one. Yeah, yeah. You've seen it before. It's like the most well-preserved, well-known Viking burial. Yeah. I can't find anything about the anchor. But, I don't know. For vibes, let's say it's changed to a rock. 
I can come back to that and do a future Mac later. <laughs> Unfortunately, according to an article by Jan Bill, it's a rope. It's, it's attached to the rock with a rope, which is less cool than a chain. So if you're going to put it in your game or story, I would suggest using a chain. I just think the aesthetics are better. I will put the citation for Jan Bill in the show notes. But all right, so it's chained to a rock. And what our author is saying probably didn't happen, but which I'm going to say you should use if you put this in in a game or a story or something, is that the back half of the ship is already buried in the mound. But the front half of the ship with the tent, with the bodies and the grave goods is protruding from that mound so that people can visit it and pay respects for months or years after the burial has started. And apparently this was then very hastily covered up as if people wanted it to be gone. They wanted it to not, (laughs) they wanted to not look at it anymore. And you know what? I think you can put us, I think you can make a story there. 100%. And you've got the staff. Don't forget about that. Yes, there's a there's a magical staff that someone has broken with a rock, which is a, a practice that's often interpreted as an artifact being ritually killed. There's some really cool reconstructions as well. Like, the ship's been reconstructed to sail, but right. I don't even yeah. know if the ship was meant to be sailed. But anyway, there's some really cool like depictions of it as the burial mound. Highly recommend looking those up. If I can, I will post them, but I want to... Make sure I'm not taking anybody's stuff. Yeah, there are pictures on Wikipedia, which yeah, are usually so cool. Creative that's Commons. So cool. If you, they might have an attribution thing. But oh hell yeah, perfect! You can also check out the Osberg like website, which is where they have some of these reconstructions. So that's cool. I can link that. All right. Yeah. Well, I think that about covers it. Yeah, I think we don't need to to do segments because this is already a long episode. Yeah, very long episode. Thank you. Wonderful listeners for bearing with us. I know that this was a more highly academic episode. Hopefully you found it enjoyable. Hopefully you found some things that you can use in your games. I would love to dig more into like what these Sathur wands, staves, rituals, things look like. I think that could be a lot of fun to put into a game. So I will be doing some digging on that. But in short, thank you for bearing with us, and I hope you guys enjoyed it. And if you did like this and like the article episodes, let us know, and we can do more of them. If there's anything you in particular would want to see or want to convert into a TTRPG adventure, creature, campaign, whatever, let us know on our Discord, and we can cover it. We're always looking for new stuff to cover, so don't be shy. Come find us, and... With that, have a wonderful pride, and we will see you all next time. See you next time. Thank you for listening to the Maniculum Podcast. Please consider leaving a rating and review on iTunes to help support us. If you're interested in exclusive merch and continuous exclusive content, consider becoming a patron on Patreon. To see our sources and our notes, check out our blog on themaniculumpodcast.com. And hey, come get involved in our community. We have a Discord group that you can join, and you can find links to our server on our Facebook group, The Maniculum Podcast, our Twitter, at Maniculum, and our Instagram, at Podcast. Original music by Walker. Check out their project, Sugar Glass, on Spotify. Uh, 
Sorry, uh, I was just adjusting my Discord notifications because I keep missing those cool things you were talking about. And yes. I wanted to, and I'd, I wanted to make sure I wasn't. Um, we're so but, technologically literate here on yes. this show. Now I will be on Discord more. Uh, but the point is, 